2: well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at luckylandsslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void required prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk
0: Recorded live. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. I'm Travis. I'm drinking. And Vic's joining me. What's up, buddy?
3: What is up, fella? How are we doing?
0: Ah, We're doing, we're doing, you know, we're about, let's see, one, two, three, a little less than three weeks away from the anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire from 1871. It actually took place on October 8th, it was a Sunday, until early Tuesday, October 10th, 1871. So what are we looking at, Vic? Like, that's a lot of time. It's been a long-ass time. I mean, that's after the Civil War, rather. World War. What a dumbass.
3: That's been a long ass time, bro.
0: 146 years it's been since the Great Chicago Fire, and if you are um, not a first-time listener, if you're a regular listener to this show, you might understand, you know, what the connection is. You know, it's a horror podcast. Why are we talking about the Great Chicago Fire? Well, quite simply, you know, in 1871, when this fire took place, it wiped out half of Chicago. And not only did it wipe out half of Chicago, it left, like, thousands of people homeless, and it killed over 300 people. And if that's not horror, I don't know what is. And we pride ourselves here on real-life horrors, uh, and this is just a certain form of that. We, we've discussed serial killers. We've discussed real-life monsters. Um, and now we get into an event that was caused by a natural calamity, and I think that's our. this is a first for us. You know, there's a lot of other ones that we could talk about, but this is our first foray into this field. <laughs> And,
3: and when come so, to Chicago, we love it. Yeah, I was going to say, let's be honest. In Chicago, it always gives us a chance to bring on our favorite guest.
0: Exactly. Anytime we can talk Chicago with a Ray Johnson and uh, a couple of additional guests like Adam Seltzer – and, uh, you know, uh, other people like that. Uh, tonight, John Bode is going to be joining us as well. Ray and him actually collaborated on a book about the Great Chicago Fire. It's like an illustrated book of the Great Chicago Fire. So um, it should be really interesting to hear about. Plus, you know, with Ray's historical knowledge of Chicago, I'm excited to talk about it. Vic, I've been doing um, Great Chicago Fire research I mean, like you wouldn't believe. I've been listening to podcasts, watching all sorts of things, and you know, to this day, we can come up with all the theories we want. And there's a uh, a uh, a little song that was made, and and a legend about what actually caused the fire. But the truth of the matter is, to this day, no one's sure what caused the fire.
4: Now, yeah, I mean,
3: and it's it, one of those things where, like, I mean, what the fuck? You know what I'm saying? Well, okay,
0: so what we do know is that the fire started around 9 p.m. on October 8, 1871, uh, in or around a small barn belonging to the O'Leary family. And this is where the legend comes from about the O'Leary's, which we'll get into shortly. And this bordered the alley behind 137 DeCoven Street in Chicago. Um, And the shed next to the barn was the uh, first building to be destroyed demolished by this fire. I mean, it was just consumed. Because what I wanted to um, get across, and Ray will help do this for us, is that Chicago was built quickly. Um, It it was an opportunity for a lot of people to get rich. Chicago itself was. The creation of Chicago was. Because it was basically the gateway to the West. You know, it's right smack dab in the middle between the East Coast and the West Coast. So everybody's going to be traveling through Chicago if they want to go West. And so Chicago had... Um, a lot of great advantages, and to this day, there's a reason why it's one of the biggest cities in the world, because Chicago, it took advantage of that. But as I said, it was built quickly and cheaply, and the way it was built was through wood, um, and you get where I'm going with this. Chicago was built with much wood, um, and it just wasn't... I mean, there was no fire state coding back then, you know what I mean? There was no fire codes, there was no... Um, standards as the way things were built. I mean, these people were making houses with flammable roofs, you know, with tar that is highly flammable. And um, what happened uh, around October 8th was the perfect storm of um, of nature and what we've created because, actually, Chicago was in like a 10-week drought at the time. They hadn't had real rain. They had maybe an inch of rain since July. So we're talking weeks and weeks and weeks without rain in a wood pile basically the city's a wood pile a flammable wood pile and all it's going to take is one spark to ignite and that's basically what we think happened here like i said that shed was consumed and city officials never actually determined the exact cause of the fire Um, there's been like i said speculation legend over the years Uh, the most popular tale is that uh, poor mrs o'leary her cow uh caused it Uh, allegedly he knocked over a lantern uh, in the middle of the night, while she was milking him. Now, you can already see the uh, the folly here, because why would Mrs. O'Leary, uh, Catherine O'Leary, I believe, be milking a cow in the middle of the night? She wouldn't, be. and that's where the problem lies. But um, and and well, hey, here we go. We got somebody on the line. Let's see, is it Ray? I think it might be Ray. I will find out here in just a second. I don't get numbers, so I always have to guess. Ray, is that you, buddy? Hello, maybe. Hey, is this John? Or yes,
1: Ray? this is John Boda.
0: Hey, John, what's going on? I was just kind of introing um, what kind of led to the Chicago Fire, but I I, I kind of want to take let the uh, experts take over. I mean, you've got you've got a book coming out um, about the Great Chicago Fire. Can you kind of set up? Um, what kind of led to this whole thing? I kind of set up how they were in a drought and how Chicago was constructed, but you can definitely craft a story better than I can, I would assume.
1: Sure. You want the story of how the fire started or how we started the book?
0: Well, uh, I'll tell you There's what. Let's start with how you started the book because that's really the relevant thing here, and then we'll get into, you know, the story of the fire itself.
4: <coughs> and here well, comes I Ray, too. Ray's yeah. going
0: to the call right now, so I'll let Ray uh,
1: piggyback as needed. So, okay, I'll get started. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've been interested in the Great Chicago Fire for many years, and uh, I've been studying it and researching it, and uh, uh, I have a connection with Chicago history with my grandmother being on the Eastland and survived the Eastland disaster in uh, 1915. But uh, with the Chicago Fire, I do presentations a lot around Chicago, about Chicago history as well as music, and I've been doing this for years. And I've befriended uh, um, the store manager at Barnes & Noble in Brook, And uh, we talk history, and we're, he always sees me at the Chicago section and everything we were talking. And uh, he says, what are you doing? I, well, I do presentations on the Eastland and Chicago Fire and the World's Fairs. And uh, uh, I was got to talking a lot about Chicago Fire. And he says, why don't you contact Arcadia Books? And I said, oh, come on. He goes, no, you you got a lot of knowledge on it. You should contact They look for local guys to do things like this. And so I took I took up his advice, and I contacted them, and I got no reply at first, and I gave up. And so I saw him again a couple of weeks later. He goes, did you contact them? I said, yeah, but no reply. He goes, try them again. <laughs> and so, lo and behold, I did, and I got an email out of the blue, and they said, we're interested. Tell us more and uh, I was kind of floored, and I I told them what what I was doing and what I want to do, and uh, it went from there, and then they suggested I possibly get a co-author, and I immediately thought of Ray, and Ray's going to jump in. He can talk about that, and we both dove right into it, and uh, I have uh, this person um, uh, credited in the the, uh, intro of the book. He's no longer there at Barnes & Noble, but um, uh, he's the one that sparked the idea, and uh, it took it from there.
5: How you doing, Ray? Hey. hey. <laughs> I couldn't tell if you could see. I didn't want to interrupt John, and I couldn't tell if you if saw that I called in. So.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. You um, <laughs> called in right after him, so he was kind of introing how he got into the book, oh. and then, of course, he kind of oh. led into you you getting involved with him as well.
5: I was listening, yes. Yes, it happened just like that. He's telling the truth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the human mind <life-tested laughs> test never fails.
1: That's right. That's yeah. right.
4: How you doing,
1: John? Hey, good to good to hear from you, Ray.
5: Hey, how you yeah. doing? Still haven't heard back from Dottie, by the way. That was all. Yeah, I know we
1: got. To, we got to talk. We got to talk. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: So, Ray, but if you to, I was going to say, Ray, if you wanted to ahead. continue the conversation to you know just be a development of the book before we get into. What actually caused the Great Chicago Fire? What they think caused it, That type of thing, and the actual, you know, the story, the history of the Great Chicago
5: Fire. Feel free. Sure, sure. So, so like John was saying, I, I when when John first contacted me, I mean, we, I think we sort of met on Facebook. I think he was part of my Chicago History the Stranger Side group, um, and he got a hold of me and said, "Yeah, I'm I'm doing this thing for Arcadia on the Chicago Fire," and the first thing I thought was. Come on, Arcadia's got books on everything. You can't tell me they, they don't <laughs> already have one on the Chicago Fire. And he's like, they don't. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. And they <laughs> and they they said I should look to get a co-author. And he asked me if I wanted to get involved. I said, sure, it'd be fun because I love the Chicago Fire, and I've got you know my family history, you know, as far as in Chicago goes goes back to 1860, and and uh, as far as I could trace it back, and uh, and I had family that was in Chicago on the Irish side they were about three blocks southwest of the of the fire so um their house was actually untouched because the fire went northeast so uh they were they were at the beginning at ground zero basically three blocks from ground zero but but they were safe and there's a whole bunch of family stories about the fire and so so again it's it's one of those topics of Chicago history that I'm really kind of interested in so it it was a good fit and uh and I think I think one of the challenging, one of the biggest challenges of the book was, the, you know, there was just so many different books on the Chicago Fire. I mean, if you if you Google Chicago Fire, I mean, I don't I don't know how many books have been written about Chicago Fire, but there are quite a few, and uh, some of them were really good and expensive. And and so with Arcadia, if you're familiar with Arcadia and their Images of America uh, series, those are the kind of uh, sepia-tone books that you see, you know, in, in most of the bookstores um, that are usually pretty um, um, specific as far as, you know, the, a lot of micro-history, you know, for a particular town or a particular neighborhood, and um, and I was really shocked I didn't have one for the Chicago Fire, so so the challenge was really to, to find photographs of a good enough quality that maybe hadn't been published before, and that was kind of the challenge that we had.
0: Yeah, that's what's interesting. You guys are are doing it from um, a photographic standpoint as opposed to just telling the written story of it, which is hard to do in itself. But I mean, how hard was the process of getting enough photos together to put together a book? I mean, I would think that would be really
1: hard. Yeah, well, I'll jump in here. It was, uh, and we both uh, we both dove in. I, I took the challenge right off the bat, and I go. I talked to Brian at uh, Barnes and Noble uh, about this. My initial contact, and he said, "Well, try here, try there, try there." Of course, Ray's got a lot of experience in that too, with the Library of Congress and other things. So I dove in the internet, and uh, lo and behold, uh, thank God for the New York Public Library uh, uh, website. They have a, a horde. Of pictures from all over the country and um they're free they're public domain and we gave reference to where we found all the pictures and when you download them you can download low def high mid def and high definition and i grabbed as many as i could and some of them we've never seen in other books before and um, that was the bulk i think from there uh the, the pictures
5: right and the thing is i know you said that you know it's difficult to tell the story from beginning to end especially when, you know, in Arcadia book, that's known mostly for photographs, but we really took the time to, um, you know, we came across, I mean, the New York Library was great, um, probably the majority of the photos come from the New York Library, but we also have photos from the Newberry Library, the Chicago History Library, the Chicago Public Library, um, the uh, Manistee Historical Society, the Holland Joint Archive Society, because the, and Peshtigo Fire Museum, so, you um, you know, because the Chicago fire, and, and you're probably going to get into this eventually, but, um, you know, it was more than just Chicago. I mean, there were a lot of huge, um, disastrous, catastrophic fires that happened the same night. And I don't want to jump ahead at all. But, but what we did with the photos is that, you know, typically when you're when you're reading a book about Chicago fire, you'll see a, a book, of uh, a picture of ruins, or say this is the corner of, you know, um, with Sal and Clark in Chicago, I, you know, what we did is we, we, we took it a little bit deeper and did a little bit of history of the, you know, j- instead of saying, this is the ruins of such and such building. We did a little bit more about, you know, well, what about that building? What was the business like? Um, you know, any sort of neat stories that were associated with each one of the photos. So it's not just a, uh, a constant, you know, Hey, there, here's some ruins of this building. Uh, here's some ruins of that building. It's more or less, you know, this is why this building was important. This is who owned it. Um, these are some stories behind it. So, so the captions are a lot more involved than um, what you would see in a, in a, in, a, in in what you would imagine in a Acadia book.
4: Not to go
0: off on a Snapchat, yeah, but, like, but I do have to ask you guys real quick. You mentioned some of the photos that hadn't been published in books before. Do, do you guys uh-huh. know why that is? Were they just not as attractive to people because they didn't have stories like you guys do? Or what do you think? I, I know it's just a, you know, a question that's hard to
4: answer.
1: Sure, sure. Just in your opinion. Sure. Uh, Ray, go ahead. What do you
5: think? Ben? Oh, okay. Um, well, I, I think what it is is that there are, there are those pictures that you see over and over again, um, well, first of all, when you when you want to do a, a book on the Chicago Fire, your first inkling is you know you're you're probably going to find most of your information in in photos in Chicago. I mean that would make sense. Um, so a lot of the photos that you see published, you constantly see republished and republished and republished. I don't know how many times I've seen pictures of the Chicago Water Tower, um, you know, from the Chicago Fire, and and you do see a lot of these photos over and over again. So, I mean, a lot of the ones from the New York library were from stereo views. Um, you know, these were souvenir uh, cards that were, um, uh, you know, that would be sold as souvenirs or whatnot, these 3D stereo views that, that you would have. And so they did. A, they had a, a huge amount of these stereo views that maybe someone saw that and thought, you know, that's kind of... A, boring picture of ruins oh here's another picture of more burned out buildings and here's another one but to actually decipher what that building was and you know what they did there and who owned it and you know so so that was um and the reason that we didn't find them before is that i mean who would have thought you'd look at new york uh to find chicago fire stuff so and luckily for us when you know john's actually the one that 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 discovered it that, that that they just had released a huge amount of digitized photos, and it's not all Chicago photos. I mean, there's millions of photos that they've just collected over the years, and and uh, so we would search on Chicago and then kind of sort them out and go, oh, here's one of the, you know, the style tunnel that we hadn't seen before, or here's one, you know, and obviously we read a lot of books on the Chicago fire, so when something stood out as wow, this, this I've never seen this one before, it's kind of neat, and especially with with the um, the Holland Joint Archives and Manistee, and and these were some of the forgotten areas in Wisconsin and in Michigan who had fires the same night, and it leads up to what the possible causes were um, that weren't published before. So we kind of expanded a little bit, you know, beyond Chicago.
1: And if I if I can jump in, uh, we uh, there there is no single picture available that uh, we know of in the world of the fire itself. That was burning no. that night. That's kind of, that's kind of amazing. Uh, it was just so hot and the wind was blowing. There possibly were pictures taken, but the, the photographs were destroyed or lost. But we have divided the uh, chapters in the book into five chapters, all starting with the letter P, Pre-Fire Chicago, Parade of Fire, Pestigo Paradigm, Post-Fire Chicago, and Paraphernalia of Fire. And uh, when the pre-fire, we show the buildings before, and the parade of fire, we show a lot of the devastation, but including some drawings and sketches and lithographs of what the fire looked like at the time. Although there's no actual picture of it, and like Ray said about the Pechuga paradigm, that actually is a triangle of fire of Chicago. Uh, uh, Peshtigo, Wisconsin, by Green Bay, north of Green Bay, and then the lower peninsula of Michigan uh, were all on fire the same night, almost the same time, and uh, there is a possibility that they were all connected, um, and Peshtigo is considered the worst fire in in the history of the United States. It happened the exact same night of the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah, that to
0: me is one of the most interesting things, and I definitely want to get into that, how... You know there were multiple fires in multiple places, and and how that could have happened. But yeah, we'll we'll kind of get there as we need to. Um, as far as the book goes, uh, you guys continue on with whatever you want to talk about as far as the book, and then we'll get into the story when you guys are ready. Sure. Um, sure. If you w
1: oh. if you. If you want, we can get into uh, you know the, the the story of the fire itself. Uh, all the, yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, like I said, it's your time, so however you want to do it is is fine with me. I just wanted to kind of educate people on the fire itself um, in whatever way you guys feel like.
1: I'll I'll just start real quick, and and every book you read on the Great Chicago Fire, they all mention the same thing, which is very true. It was a very dry summer. Uh, very little amounts of rainfall, and that that's so true. And um, it was it was warm, and it was dry, it was a powder keg, ready uh, ready to uh, be engulfed into, into flame at any time. And it was just the perfect uh, chain of events that led to it. And the uh, official statement from Chicago is: we know where it started at 137 South Decovan, which is the you know the barn of the O'Learys there. Just we just don't know how it started. Why it started or who started it. And, you know, every, the myth, of course, is Mrs. O'Leary it was uh, October 8th, 1871. And um, there's the O'Leary's lived with um, uh, Pat- Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. They raised five kids there in a little shanty. And uh, uh, she had some problem with her foot that night, uh, according to her testimony. And she went to bed early possibly about 8.15 or so uh, that evening. And uh, some of the neighbors corroborated her story. They came up there to visit. Oh, I'm sorry, you're already in bed. And and uh, uh, so she had nothing to do with it. She had five cows back there. And the fire started around 9, 9.15 or so. So she had been in bed 45 minutes or an hour before the fire started. The first thing she heard of it was a uh, the, the neighbor, Peg Leggo, Sullivan saw it and came and woke him up. and her husband. Patrick O'Leary said, uh, Kate, the barn is a fire. Kate, the barn is a fire. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this song, uh, I send you, called Kate, the barn is a fire. And they went back there, and their, their main ambition was to save the barn and her cows and uh, and the house. And uh, amazingly, they did save the house because the fire was going the other way. And uh, so a lot of the neighbors were kind of envious, too. They, they all blamed it on her, of course, and her house was spared. Um, but the barn wasn't. And then it, that started the whole chain of events that night and it got ahead of the fire department and it just got out of control. Uh, many of the people uh, from downtown were saw it uh, and they thought, well, we're OK. That's in the West divisions, the other side of the river. Uh, a big mistake because then it just jumped the river and then it just devastated the downtown area. The same thing with the north side. They looked at it and it's the other side of, of the river there and it jumped the river twice And uh, it just went through all the way up to Fullerton, um, and it stopped around uh, sometime in the early morning hours of October the 10th, and a light rain started. We don't know if the rain stopped it or or just it just ran out of things to burn, but uh, it was a horrific (laughs) fire then. (laughs) Ray, you jump in.
5: Oh okay, I was just kind of just ran out of stuff to burn. I mean, it was headed northeast, so eventually it was going to hit the lake and and lakes aren't known to burn so um and uh and and you know the thing one of the things that kind of delayed the whole reaction of the fire the fire department was burned out uh you know to use I i didn't really mean to use that as a pun, but the fire department was burned out because the night before there was a fire in the same area, and so right. uh, the guy. Station at the courthouse, whose job it was to kind of, you know, be on the lookout for fires and then ring the alarm, just um, thought it was embers burning from the night before. So there was, a, there was a little bit of a delay, too. It was kind of a perfect storm of, of errors or a comedy of errors. And, um, you know, so, yeah, it did head northeast. Like I said, my, my relatives were about three blocks southwest of the O'Leary Place. Uh, When it happened, you know, a really neat family story is that uh, my great-great-grandfather was named Patrick Baloney, and there was a a story within the family that during the fire, he helped the fire department, you know, that he was gone for three days helping the fire department, and I was like, wow, what a great guy, you know, and then as I was reading more and more into the fire, um, and being Irish myself, and, you know, being that this is a, a drunken history show... Um, more or less, uh, it kind of made sense because uh, a lot of the bars, uh, they were afraid the Irish um, were going to start looting. So so what the bars did is they just put out their whiskey, uh, kegs and barrels of whiskey out on the street so that they wouldn't break into their bars stealing the whiskey. <laughs> so basically there was all this booze sitting on the street, and I have a feeling that my great-great-grandfather was like on a three-day binge, <laughs> more than yeah.
1: more than helping the <laughs> fire department.
4: <laughs>
1: yep. There, he took advantage. There, there, there was there was some looting involved and uh um General Sheridan was called in uh famous Civil War general of course living in Chicago to uh to uh, uh martial law and uh, uh it like one of the firemen said that night everything was against us. Uh, Ray is totally right about the night before the fire that uh the dryness uh, and then the wind was blowing about 30 miles an hour and uh it was just a a sequence of errors and when they finally uh, called it in the courthouse uh, they sent it to the wrong address um, and everything was, like, running late, and the fire just got out of control. And and back then, many of the people's form of entertainment was to step out in the street and look at the fire. They had no television or no computers, and they'd always stand here and watch the fire. And some of them started doing that for this fire, this fire but they just started – they realized this is no ordinary fire. And uh, it just got out of control, and about 100,000 people ended up uh, homeless. And people always say, where did they go? well lincoln park and uh, lincoln park used to be city cemetery and uh um and they were all went to their lincoln park and it was just imagine about 100,000 people and um at, during the fire itself many of them were just went in the lake and just kept uh, dousing themselves with water um it's all they could do
5: right and that's a big reason why lincoln why there's still about 20,000 bodies um at least by you know most estimates, still in under the ground in Lincoln Park, because it was it was yeah. before the fire they they decided that the city cemetery that land was too expensive, and uh, they needed right. to start moving bodies out of there to some of the outlying cemeteries, and uh, when the fire hit, yeah. it burnt all the cemetery records and if, and a lot of the the, the markers were wood. So, basically, if there were no records and there was no marker, then there was no body as far as the city was concerned. So, that's a big reason why there's still about 20,000 people buried under Lincoln Park. Right. You know,
0: Ray, uh, he, he, John got into this a little bit, and I think it's important, Is we're talking about the time period of 1871, and while we can throw out 1871... I think it's important that we kind of get into something like about the fire department and how things were then. We didn't have fire trucks back then, but they did have a fire department. But you know, it's not the way we think of it now. Talk a little bit about that, you know, historically speaking.
5: Well, I mean, you, I mean, obviously they don't have, you know, um, they had pumper wagons. Basically, they had. Uh, in fact, they've got one on display at the um, uh, Chicago uh, Fire Academy. And it was basically just a, uh, a a big canister of water on a carriage pulled by a horse that would pump water uh, onto a fire. So it wasn't like they could just hook into a fire hydrant and, and start, you know, putting out fires. So, um, you know, I mean, there were a lot of fires. Um, I think there was probably close to 600 fires um, every year. So they had about two fires a day. Uh, with a, you know, a population of, I don't know, probably close to 300,000 at that point. Um, and everything was made of wood. I mean, the the sidewalks were wood, the bridges were wood. Um, so fires were, were a constant worry. Um, you know, and, and of course, you know, no electricity was all, it was all oil lamps and kerosene and, and all that sort of stuff. So so fire was something we were always concerned with. Um and and the fire department was pretty much in its infancy as well. So,
1: yeah, they they had an elaborate system of, of fire boxes uh, on responsible businesses. Uh, these fire boxes. Uh, one of them, one of the closest ones to the O'Leary residence, was Bruno's drugstore. <clears throat> and uh, uh, a guy named William Lee was a resident that ran there, and uh, say hey, there's a fire, there's a fire, and he had to get him to open up with the key. And uh, there was some discrepancy of uh, him saying, oh, I already turned it in. They were they were arguing. Everything was wasting precious time. But when you open it up, uh, there's a knob, and it said, you know, theft, murderer, uh, uh, drunkard. Uh, and you turn it to the, the thing that says fire, and he pulls the lever down, and it goes to the courthouse. And uh, that was their elaborate system at that time, which worked pretty well. And uh but this, this fire just got out of control uh really fast that night and uh um it's legendary.
5: Well like John, I mean John's told me important a couple times that this fire was moving at, at, at the pace that a normal man could run. So literally if, if this right. fire was chasing you, you'd be uh, basically running for your life because you're running as fast as this fire is spreading.
1: Right. <clears throat> And if I can uh, just mention about the, uh, the the Peshtigo, I've done a lot of reading on that. There's a there's a great book on it. Uh, there's a, a man named Father Pernan who was a priest there. He survived it amazingly, and uh, um, it's called Firestorm at Peshtigo, and uh, it's that was horrific. They they sensed something was coming in the exact same night, October the eighth. 1871, and he was burying stuff in the ground, and everything was, they heard this rumble in the distance, and one of his prisoners said, Father, what, what are we going to do if there's a fire? He said, just run to the river. And uh, sure enough, they were prophetic words, because it just came through the trees there like like a train. And he said, Run! And they ran, and people were like uh, incinerated. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah in, a, in the Bible. And, and it's absolutely horrific. And they ran, they ran, and he had to just go in the water. Completely submerged in the river to to have any hope of living, and uh, and then you stayed underwater. You can just put your your lips above the water for a second, and get some air, and go back underwater, and we're talking for four, five, six hours. And uh, and he did that, and he just couldn't take it anymore. After hours, he came up to try to help people, and uh, one person said, "Father, your back is on fire." He was up for 20 seconds, and he was on fire. And many of the the people said the air itself was burning. They said that in Chicago, they said that in Peshtigo, and they said that in in Michigan. It was very, very unusual. There's something about this fire that seemed to be propagated through the air. And it was like balloons of gas. And that's one of the reasons that uh, it's possible of the theory of of a comet that that came over and and dispersed with this this air. That's why we get into it in the Peshtigo paradigm.
5: Right. There was yeah. One, there was they, one they, that, yeah. about kind of, When I was in Peshtigo, I went to the museum and talked to a lot of volunteers there. And the and the the fire cemetery is right next to the museum, and that there's a mass grave. Obviously, not everyone could be identified, but the ones that were identified, there were stories associated with each one of the the headstones, and it was fascinating that you know there were stories about these these blobs that were in the air and they would, they would, someone described it as being black actually. And, and whether or not these were like, I, I don't know what it was, but there were more than one person talking about them. And you'd see a person in an open field and this black thing would hover above them. And then the person would instantly ignite in flames. Um, so whatever this right. was, something superheated. There, there was a story about um, this guy's family is all buried in the cemetery They were trying to escape in a wagon, and one of the wagon wheels, you know, something had gone wrong with it or busted or something, and he jumped off the wagon to fix the wheel. And once he fixed the wheel, he went to get back up on the wagon, and his entire family was incinerated, except for him. So, you know, really kind of off the wall. I mean, you guys and, uh, are really
0: telling it because it, it's not a story of people dying of smoke inhalation, although I'm sure that happened. This is a story of people actually catching on fire and
1: dying. Yes. Right. Uh, and uh, also, you know, the, the, this uh, they call it Peshtigo, but it was actually – that was like the center of it. And the, the governor of Wisconsin a, at the time was a was – a, uh, had fought in the Civil War. Uh, his name eludes me at the moment, but uh, he quickly – uh, heard about the Chicago fire. Chicago took all the news, and he he had a, uh, he quickly uh, got to Chicago as fast as he could to try to help out with a crew of men, and he said, pack up, get a train full of supplies, and send it down, and I'll meet you down there. Well, the tra- while the train was being packed up with supplies, his wife – heard about Peshtigo, and he was already gone, and uh, uh, she commandeered the train and stopped it, said, forget about Chicago, turn, turn that around, we need it here, and uh, tell my husband to come back, and she just like ran the whole thing as his, his wife, and everybody was grateful for that, because the news, uh, they didn't realize that Peshtigo got it so bad, and what the amazing thing is, it's nearly the same minute I mean, I did a lot of looking into it. Uh, I mean, the best we can tell, October 8th, around 9, 9.15, and that's right about the time within the 15, 20 minutes that it started there. And it's a little bit more ambiguous in Michigan, but it's like the same night as well. And uh, that's highly suspect and of the coincidence of these three fires of a triangle the same night. Yeah,
4: it's really bizarre.
0: Um yeah, I guess with regards, well, with regards to Chicago or anywhere else, talk a little bit about the architecture and things like that that got wiped out, you know, in the face of the
5: fire. Ray, go ahead. Um, well, I mean, you had you had all sorts of buildings that were considered fireproof at the time, um, you know, including including the uh, Palmer House. So, I mean, this fire was uh, people didn't really understand how hot this fire was. Um, you had you had buildings that were that had stone facades that just became rubble um, you had you had molten uh just to give you an idea there was a hardware store close to where the Chicago history Museum is now, and they have a a metal blob that is sitting in the in the back of the Chicago history Museum that was just what used to be the inside of a hardware store basically it was all the the nails and and all the hardware that had been melted into one single glob of molten metal. So um, and it, 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 they they were thinking about moving it inside of the Chicago History Museum, but they said it would be so heavy that it would cr- it would crash through the floor. So it's just sitting in a bush outside the Chicago History Museum. And you have some of these things all over the city that that are still remind you of of the fire they have one at Oakwood Cemetery. And uh, so nothing was really spared. Um, there was no quote-unquote fireproof building. I mean, the, the water tower survived, um, the water tower just being a uh, uh, a large standpipe uh, that would help regulate the water that was being pumped from the pumping station. Um, but uh, And it was kind of strange. There were a couple buildings that made it through for some reason. You know, it's kind of like when you see a tornado go through an area. You know, you have all this devastation and also you have this building that's sitting there untouched. Um, it was kind of the same way, but for the most part, it was, it was, it was total devastation. Wherever this fire went, it didn't matter what this building was made out of. It, it became rubble, uh, including the courthouse. I mean, probably the courthouse is probably the, the one building that probably would stood at the best, but, um, um, you could actually make it out the photographs about what it was, um, but when, when you see these photographs of the entire city, it's you know, it's it, it, the stuff is barely recognizable. Um, so, so regardless of the architecture, I mean, there were a lot of wooden buildings, obviously, but even the even the cement, stone, granite buildings were still
4: um, turned into rubble. So, you know, you brought right. up the courthouse and
0: and. and- I just wanted you to, and this is perfect for you, Ray, especially. I mean, originally, they were just like, uh, they didn't really do anything with the prisoners, and then they evacuated. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that story.
5: Right. Well, pretty much they weren't. I mean, they pretty pretty much felt safe. Uh, like most people in Chicago, they, they were kind of used to fires because they had two a day. Um, and like John was saying, that was kind of like their entertainment to go out and watch the fire department fight a fire. Um, so there really wasn't a lot of concern at first, but then it was, um, you know, you had all these, these people in the jails that were, were in the basement, the courthouse basically. And, um, and it was one of the turnkeys, you know, and the sheriff that just said, you know, what, we just got to let these guys out they're, and then they're going to die if we don't let them out. So basically they just released everyone from the jail, just let them out during the fire. Um, I don't know if there's any stats on exactly how many of them they got back, um, they they probably weren't too concerned about that, um, once they realized that their entire city was pretty much gone. Um but but at least someone thought of that. You know, I'm glad go <coughs> someone could, could back to that courthouse and move these leave these what? Uh,
1: prisoners in the there, there is a little funny story about, about that. Uh, uh, the mayor uh, did say, go, go let them out, but the, I think the hardcore murderers, he had them transferred somewhere. He said, let the rest of them out. And the moment they ran out to freedom, um, there is a story I read in, in one of my uh, Chicago Fire books that there happen to be one of the uh, carriages going by. that were stuck in the traffic in the chaos, everybody trying to grab their merchandise and, and their belongings and escape and they couldn't get through, just like Chicago traffic is that we know would like to day. Just imagine during the chaos of the fire. I don't know if it was from Marshall, not Marshall Fields, I don't know where it was from, one of the department stores. All kinds of clothing and expensive items in it. And the proprietor supposedly said, right at the moment these prisoners got out, uh, go on, help yourself, take anything you want. I can't get through. And then so these these prisoners were big luck. They got released and they got uh, free items and clothing. and. <laughs> Of course, we don't know if they lived. We don't know if they lived. No, we don't. That's about it. We
0: don't. (laughs) You know, technically, Uh, this was was actually the perfect scenario for somebody to start over, too. I mean, somebody's married. They don't really want to be in that situation anymore.
5: They could just disappear into the abyss. Exactly. I'm
4: sure that happens a lot
5: because, I mean, uh, according to the stats, only about 300 or so people were killed in that fire, and, and i I find that highly suspect, you know, given the the ferocity and the speed that that fire moved um to me, it's more likely that you had entire families burned up and since there was no one to uh to say that somebody was missing because everyone that knew you was was deceased at well, the numbers are probably a lot
1: higher than that. One more thing on the architecture. Crosby's Opera House was this huge building. I don't have the exact address. Maybe Ray can jump in. It was closed for the summer of 1871. They had extensive remodeling, and they spent a lot of money on it, and the grand opening was set for Monday, October the 9th, 1871. I mean, right when everything was on fire. And, uh, in fact, they even had an orchestra that was coming in the town for the gala. And uh, they had to, to turn around. They couldn't get in town. And it was just a terrible day to pick for a grand reopening. I think, <laughs>
5: yeah. I think the Grand Pacific Hotel had the same thing, didn't it? I think the Grand Pacific was yes. Have
1: a grand opening on October yes. ninth as well. Yeah. That's right. There was a couple of them. Yeah. Bad timing. So we've
0: we've gotten into the architecture and we've gotten into the city and we've gotten into the city surrounding, but you know we haven't talked specifically about maybe the people involved. I know we've talked broadly about it. I mean, are there some specific stories you can tell about some of the people that were either killed or affected by this thing?
1: Um, I could start off with one of them. Yeah, uh, uh, William Ogden was was Chicago's first mayor, uh, and uh, we have Ogden Avenue named after him. He's an incredible guy, and uh, um, now he wasn't mayor at the time, but he was still alive, and he was up in years, and uh, uh, he, he got really affected by this fire in a big way. He lost everything in Chicago, and furthermore, uh, he started the Peshtigo Lumber Company in Peshtigo. He had extensive investment in Peshtigo. And uh, so he he lost, I don't know if it was over a million dollars back then, of Chicago and in Peshtigo. And he's already up, I think he was close to 70 years old. And uh, from what I hear and read, he just rolled up his sleeves, went up there, helped them rebuild Peshtigo and did what he could in Chicago. He actually got married late in life at that time as well. And in his later years, he just did everything he could to help them rebuild. But he was one of the guys that... Really suffered, and his brother, uh, Malin Ogden, had a beautiful wooden uh home right in the midst of uh, of where the fire was coming. And all his neighbors were affected, and all their houses were burning. And they rushed to his big place and and figure, what are we going to do? And let's just stay here, and while we're here, let's let's try to uh uh help them. And they they watered down the whole area and got rid of the brush as the fire was coming to his house. And miraculously, uh, Ogden's brother's house was spared. Uh, And it was made out of wood. And uh, um, it's it's right in the heart of where the fire went through. And today, the Newberry Library is right on that spot of where uh, Malin Ogden's house was.
5: Hmm. Right. And probably one of the most most, uh, famous victims of the fire was Potter Palmer. And so you had Palmer who started General you know, Merchandise Store uh, years before the fire, and and kind of worked his way up. And then and then it was kind of a weird story. He was he was in his 30s, and uh, in this general store, and a 13 and a year old girl walked in with her family, and it was Bertha Onway and her family. And uh in, in his 30s, he he knew somehow that he was going to marry this 13 year old. Um, he he didn't marry her when she was 13, obviously, but um, but he he you know, when she turned of age, he asked her to date him and, and she kind of turned him down a couple of times. Uh, and then he started making more money and, uh, she still didn't want to date him. And, uh, at one point he said, you know, how about if I, I build you a hotel? And, uh, and then she said, well, we'll see. And then, so he, he built the first farmer house. Um, and then, uh, literally within two weeks is when the fire hit, uh, burned it to the ground. And, um, uh, and luckily the, uh, the, the architect of the Palmer house had buried the plans underneath the, um, the clay of, uh, of the, of the base of the building. And so when, when the Palmer house went down, the, the architectural plans were, were safe. And then, uh, he had approached his, 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 um, wife and said, well, I guess you're not gonna, you're not gonna stay with me anymore now that I've lost everything. And she goes, no, you still owe me a hotel. And, uh, and so he went back east, and just with his name alone, he was able to secure a million dollar loan, and came back and rebuilt the Palmer House, and uh, and actually built it. Uh, I, it was kind of funny. It was, a, I believe, a ten story hotel, and um, and he had promised these people that his loans and the money that he would repay them in a certain amount of time, and when he 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 looked at how many rooms were in it. And the fact that he couldn't, uh, even if he had, you know, 100% occupancy over the past, over the next five years, there wouldn't be enough money to pay back his creditors. So he went back to uh, uh, to the architect and said, I need to make it a little bit higher. And the, um, the architect said, well, you know, there's really no buildings that high. And he said, and who's going to be willing to pay, um, you know, a huge exorbitant rates for, you know, a, a, to walk up 12 flights of stairs to the hotel room? And so he was like, yeah, you're right. And he was kind of depressed. He was walking away and 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 was looking at the trains that were running. And he came up with the idea of the vertical railroad, which basically was an elevator. And so Potter Palmer, while he's not a mechanic or or, or an engineer, um, he came up with the idea of, of the elevator. And it was actually Otis <laughs> who was developing the elevator that came to the Palmer House and saw this vertical railway that would take people up to their... Rooms and he said, Do you mind if I, you know, borrow this? Or, or you know, and he said, What do I care? I'm in the hotel business. And uh, so Otis kind of took the idea and, and ran with it. So Potter Palmer actually in,
1: invented really the, the elevator
5: out of that whole thing. So.
1: Sure. And if I'm not mistaken, he was the you know, first residence to have an elevator in his house, the Pop, uh, Potter Palmer Castle on Lakeshore Drive. He had an elevator in the house. Right. Well, my that was my son. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, well since we talked about some of the people affected, um I, I guess we'll go to Mrs. O'Leary since we 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 kind of touched on <laughs> possible causes of this whole thing. Um I I guess now would be the time to talk about, you know, the theories as to what may have caused the Great Chicago Fire.
1: Uh I'll yeah, I'll start off real quick on there. Yes, Mrs. Ahead. Mrs. O'Leary was she was a scapegoat from the very beginning. Uh, there's a Chicago Journal a paper. Somehow, October 9th, the next day, while, while Chicago was burning, they found uh, the ability to, to print out uh, an edition of the paper, and they immediately uh, blamed her while Chicago was burning. And uh, she, she got the bad rap for it. Now, it's true. It did start there. It's 137 Coven uh, where the Chicago Fire Academy is now. And uh, but uh, she, like I said, her testimony. They had a big inquiry afterward,
2: and they interviewed
1: everybody, and uh, you know, she had extensive questioning, and she decided, she was adamant. I had nothing to do with this, and she wanted nothing to do with the the memorials and the anniversaries, and and she <laughs> even um, uh, she said I went to I went to bed early that night, and uh, she furthermore said they kept coming to her house years later. Get out of here. And, and uh, then they asked her for a picture, and she says, "You'll never find a picture of me on the face of the earth." And to this day, we have no idea what Mrs. O'Leary looked like, because her picture cannot be found anywhere. She had the last laugh. But um, uh, as far as how it started, uh, we don't know. There was um, they uh, the O'Learys owned this this double uh, like a house. They lived in a shanty in the uh, the back, and they rented the front part out to the McLaughlin family. Another Irish family, and that night the McLaughlin family had a had a family member that had just come to America from Ireland. and They were celebrating, and Mister McLaughlin was somewhat of a fiddle player, and they had a little party. Of course, you think immediately they're all drunk. They're Irish. Well, according to them, they weren't <laughs> drinking. They had no alcohol. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sorry, Ray. And uh, uh, well, that's okay. so I got a couple of good Irish jokes. <laughs> <so.
0: laughs> I resemble that remark. He
1: was playing. He was playing the fiddle, and Mrs. O'Leary's heard the fiddle, and Pegleg Sullivan is a neighbor who actually had a peg leg, and he heard the fiddle for a little bit. And uh, then uh, now, there could have been one of the people at the party that went back there to try to get some milk from one of the cows to make milk rum. But they, they testified, no, we didn't do that. There could have been kids playing back there, whatever happened, and started in that barn. Mrs. O'Leary had no reason to milk the cows at uh, 9 o'clock at night. She did it in the morning. Peg O'Sullivan, Sullivan, some people that suspect him, um, he was sitting there uh, on the fence, uh, by the fence across the, the street, just taking in the nice night before he hit the sack, and he heard the fiddle playing, and according to him, he saw the barn was a catch on fire, and he, he hobbled over there. And uh, he immediately uh, woke up Mr. O'Leary, Patrick O'Leary, ran in the barn, and try to save Ms. O'Leary's cows. And his testimony was, um, it was all you know, chaos and smoke. And and uh, he got his peg leg stuck in the floorboards. And uh, the you know he, he's like in the process of dying. And he yanks out his leg, and the the peg stays in the floorboards. And he falls on one of the cows. And the cow, <laughs> it sounds like a, a Indiana Jones movie. And the cow runs out with him. <laughs> And most, most of the cows were killed, but he was spared. Now, some people suspect him because uh, uh, the place he supposedly saw the barn burn, if you, there's real estate records. There was other houses in the way. You couldn't see the barn. He changed the story three to four times. Um, he's very um, unreliable. And there's some people that suspect he's the guy that started it. But to this day, we have no idea how it started. That's just the bottom line.
0: Yeah, I was going to say there's the comet theory also. You guys expand on that a little bit. You talked about that briefly earlier as well. Ray, you want to jump
5: on that one first? Sure. I mean, the comet theory kind of makes a lot of sense because in the book we kind of put together this this map of where all these kind (laughs) of fires occurred that same night, and it does kind of give you the impression of, of it being more or less a debris field. It almost looks like when there's a plane crash, or something like that, the the shape of the debris field. uh, is kind of the same shape that you have between Chicago, Peshtigo, Holland, Michigan, Manistee, Michigan, and in the Port Huron area. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's true that there was a drought. It's true that that fires were common. Um, But really, you have Peshtigo being completely annihilated, Holland being completely annihilated, Manistee being completely annihilated, It's not as though, you know, it's not unusual for there to be a fire in all of these cities, but for it to be all on the same night, almost at the exact same time uh, in the evening of the um, ace and the intensity of each one of the fires, even though some of these towns are smaller, Holland wasn't all that big, Manistee wasn't all that big, but yet the the, the same descriptions uh, are pretty much across the board as far as the people claiming that the air was on fire That was a very common um, way of describing it so I mean I again John like John said he you know we don't really know where it happened uh, there was supposedly John actually knows the story better than I do but basically it was it was a comic that was named Beulah if I remember correctly and and people were expecting to see it and, uh, and then at one year it split into two comets and then uh, they were expecting it around the time of the, so there was a Beulah one and a Beulah two. And then right around the time of the October fire is when they expected to see these two halves again and, and it never showed. So it, it's kind of coincidental that, uh, all this stuff was going on at the same time. The fires all burned. Um. As hot, I mean, Pestigo obviously was huge. Agua was huge. Man- I mean, Manistee and Holland were huge, but but comparing the fires, they weren't as big or didn't cover as much area. But yet, the same type of description was the same, no matter you know what area people people were talking about. Um, so anyway, if if I had to choose something, if I was a betting guy, I'd bet on the comet or meteor shower uh, type of thing. It would just it would make sense.
1: Yeah, on, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd probably give it like an 8 or a 9. It, yeah, Biela Comet, it's spelled B-I-E-L-A. It was first discovered in 1832, and they had astronomers back then. And, you know, like, like Halley's Comet, it comes around at regular intervals, and it was again seen in 1839. Uh, but then in 1846, it was seen by multiple astronomers as two comets. It had some kind of collision in space, and it would make big news. And so they named it Belia B- B- 1, uh, Bela B- 2. And then the next time in 1852, they were separated by millions of miles so the trajectory was off and it was visible for three weeks so we don't know uh, what was going on. And then the next expected returns, 1859, 1865, it didn't even show. So the theory is that one of them uh, veered off the, so out of the solar system and it's still out there somewhere, way the heck out in space. And the other one, just the opposite it got pulled in by gravity and the next expected exciting was for early 1872 but it, but again it got here sooner if it, this is it in october and um, people say well how can it be a comet there's no crater they they don't you know, go into the impact of the earth itself it actually uh in, in the atmosphere it's dissolved and it's full of methane and other gases when it mixes with oxygen it's extremely hot and flammable, and, uh, and also uh, the comet's travel in a triangle shape. And what, what hits first, it comes down like a big parachute, and if it dissolves, what hits first are the corners, the three corners. And the three corners of the triangle would be Chicago, Peshtigo, and the lower peninsula of Michigan. And so, I mean, all that's put together is like evidence in a court of law, although it's not ironclad and it's not hundred percent, it's certainly a, a viable theory.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it works better than uh, a cow knocked over a
4: lantern. <laughs> in my opinion. Well there some people
5: that said, well Chicago the Chicago fire started all the other ones and it's like, yeah, well, you know, for the fire I mean the Chicago fire was pretty pretty brutal, but I don't think it jumped Green Bay. Um so uh, and plus it it would have taken a while to get there, so there's no way they all would have started at the same time. Yeah,
1: if yeah. you know, if if this is act if this is actually true, uh like I said, it, it not, first it jumped the Chicago River, the 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 branch of the Chicago River, and then it jumped Green Bay and if, in a in a panoramic view of the entire triangle, it, it really looks like it jumped across Lake Michigan.
5: Which okay. is really okay. tough to
1: believe. Yeah, I mean, it could, it's yeah. like, that's it's only huge a hundred
5: miles, it's only a hundred miles across, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so.
3: Oh,
5: hogwash, Ray.
3: Hogwash. <laughs> Don't
0: let
5: facts get hogwash. into the way of a good story. Hogwash. Oh, right. <laughs> you're right, you're right. It was a strong wind. <laughs> yeah, very strong. All it was, was.
4: Okay, so the the yeah.
0: rain and everything else helps to fizzle it out. I know the rain wasn't a lot, so I'm sure it wasn't the rain by itself. It ran out of fuel, all those things. The the fire fizzles out, and what happens from there? I understand Chicago actually, technically in a way, kind of benefited from the whole thing. And I don't want to like make light of the situation, but I mean Chicago kind of um, scraped themselves up and, and got better. Correct?
5: Oh yeah, absolutely. yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, a lot of people point to the Chicago fire as being the start of the actual city of Chicago. I mean, even though technically right. it was a town in eighteen thirty three and 1837, it really wasn't much of anything. And then it was the rebuilding that actually caused them to actually start building um with with a plan. Um Chicago kind of just just grew as they needed it and and there were times where they actually changed streets and had to make people move their houses because it didn't line up correctly with the streets and so after the Chicago Fire, it was kind of like, well, we need a plan, and and, uh, and and architects and and workers, and so so a lot of what I mean, Chicago actually kind of owes its rebirth to, to the Chicago Fire. To be honest,
1: I mean, absolutely, like absolutely. Uh, yeah, and and uh, it, it, be, it Chicago became the fastest growing city in the history of the world between 1871 and 1893 in 1871 we had like 300,000 people living here and most many people thought well that's the end of chicago the fire just destroyed the whole city and just the opposite everybody flocked here and real estate and just grew and by by 1893 we've got a million people living in chicago think about that 300,000 in 1871 and a million after the fire in 1893, we had the big uh, World's Fair that summer, of course, and, and the big day was Chicago Day at the World's Fair, uh, uh, October 9th, which which celebrated the fact that we look here, uh, the anniversary of the fire. Look how far we've come.
5: Yeah, and you talk about being burned to the ground, and then you're hosting um, literally the world for six months. So for six months, the whole world was looking at Chicago, and uh, – and really, a lot of the a lot of the uh, things at the World's Fair, especially like the Japanese exhibit on Wooded Island, use the phoenix as as kind of the uh, the theme of the World's Fair because you're you're talking like literally just a little over 20 years ago there was nothing, and now we've got a, a, a huge city and we're hosting uh, one of the largest, if not the most attended World's Fairs ever. So it was really a, a really a feather in the cap for Chicago to to prove to the world what they could really do. Right.
0: Yep. How was Chicago able to bounce back so quickly? I mean, you guys think most places would have been bankrupted by it. I know insurance companies went out of business because of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Well,
5: a lot of, I mean, I, I think what it was, that you had a lot of, uh, you had a lot of, um, um, uh speculation real estate speculation from out east so you had a lot of money coming from out east thinking okay well this is a clean slate um you know we had a lot of money pouring in investors um you had a a, a, a pretty large workforce of people looking for work um so it did it, again and plus you had the river you had a lot of commerce to begin with we had um the, the the railroads, I mean that we had the river going, you know, going into the Great Lake. So so you still had a lot of the infrastructure that we had before that and we we're still the center of, of transportation, um, which is one of the reasons we ended up getting the fair to begin with. Um so so you had a lot of investments, a lot of investors looking to pour their money into Chicago because they
1: saw that it could be something great. Yeah, the the, uh, the timing was perfect, too. I mean, it was uh, young, new architects uh, flocked to Chicago. You know, we had the, uh, shortly thereafter, Louis Sullivan, Daniel Burnham, and, and, and all these other architects came. And then, you know, they developed the first skyscrapers. And, and Chicago was actually laid out haphazardly when it first started. And, you know, if the fire never occurred, we could go downtown today and probably hardly recognize and get lost where the heck we're at. <clears throat> Because it wasn't laid out properly, and it was really an architect's dream to wipe the slate clean and start over uh, in the high tech uh, time, so so to speak, high tech time of the 1880s, 18 uh, slate, 1870s, 1880s, and uh, to do it right. So Chicago became a real modern city as compared to you know Boston or New York. Chicago historians look at it as Pre-fire and post-fire, like we look at BC and AD, and I will say this: the 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 moment that uh, the courthouse we have that burned, the bell they had a big bell that was ringing in the courthouse, like emergency, like we would have sirens, and that bell crashed to the ground with a huge huge sound. People heard for possibly miles around, and historians look to the the moment that bell hit the ground about, the morning, October ninth, as the end of old Chicago and the beginning of the new one, that bell marked the end of Old Chicago. That was October 9th, around 2, 2.30 in the morning, 1871.
0: And we're so close to the anniversary now, and you guys have great timing as far as your uh, book goes. Um, so um, let's jump back to the book. Um, give me some selling points for the book. What what makes the book different and you know something that people want to buy in 2017, 2018 coming up?
5: Ray go ahead. jump on that yeah yeah me jump on it all right well, I think I think the one the the point of the of the uh photographs not being published before, which is which is very cool uh we also expand on it on, like we said more than just the Chicago fire itself but its relation to a lot of the other fires going on at the time um and how they may all be interrelated uh, we also have a section on what you can still find in Chicago. That um, that will might will remind you uh, things you can still visit uh, today. Survivors of the fire uh, that people may not be even be aware of. Um, one thing I'm going to try to do is is actually hopefully before uh, the actual release date on October 2nd, I'm hoping to have a uh, a uh, downloadable app uh, where people can actually download to their phone for free and kind of and a uh, pertaining to the book where they can go around the Chicago and see some of the sites mentioned uh, in the book. Um, and we do show a lot of photos of the things that have survived and, and been moved, um, like, the, like one of the great stories, of the, the Second Presbyterian Church, uh, whose, whose first building they had just ended services at, the, at their first building in Chicago, and uh, the, uh, two of the altar chairs were sent out for repairs, and their their church that they were that they had just closed burned down, and and the newer one was was just ready to be started. And those chairs actually made it back because they were out for repairs. So they display these chairs that survived the Chicago Fire because they weren't in Chicago at the time. A, and that's a pretty famous church there in Chicago. So a lot of sites that you can go to um, that kind of have stories related to the to the fire, even though it's been you know so many years after.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll add, uh, they sent us uh, a couple of advanced copies. We, I have one in my hand now. And I, I decided, doggone it, we did the book, but I'm going to just count. And I counted every single picture we have in there. It's 213 pictures. I don't know if you know that, Ray, but uh, that's a lot of pictures in one book, 213. And uh, the chapter, Ray, is alluding to is Paraphernalia of Fire, which is the fifth chapter, which I think is really a big plus Like you said, there's stuff that, like, what can we see today uh, to put our hands on? And uh, we ended the book uh, by a picture that I took. I'll conclude with that about the paraphernalia. Uh, My wife and I had an anniversary, and we went on a sailboat uh, in Chicago. And uh, I I immediately said to the captain of the sailboat, get us to the water crib. I want to see the water crib. And uh, sure enough, we went behind the water crib, and I took a picture of the city of Chicago with the water crib there. And that, conc- that is the last picture in the book. And the reason that's in there is because uh, a guy named John Tollin was stationed on the water crib during the fire with his, with his uh, wife. Now, it was a different water crib in 1871, but it was the same spot. They have this water crib two miles out where they would draw in fresh water under the lake by a pipe, which goes to waterworks and then to the water tower. And He was stationed on there, and he testified that he spent uh, hours and hours putting out embers and, and, and fire that was landing on the roof of the, and landing on the water crib, and single-handedly saved it. He saved it from burning. And the amazing thing is that that darn crib is two miles out into Lake Michigan. So we know that it was the, the, the fire embers or whether they were pieces of wood or just fire out of the air were actually going out two miles at least. And so I have a picture of the water crib, today's water crib, when you can see how far out the fire came in Lake Michigan.
0: Yeah, John, I don't know great. if you're familiar with Adam Seltzer. Ray is, uh, and I just want to let you guys know that Adam is joining the line as well. What's up,
1: hey, Adam? Hey, everybody.
2: Hey, guys. Adam. Hey, Adam.
3: Hey.
1: Hey, Adam. Hey, Ray. Yes. How you doing? Good. Sure. Yeah. 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 Nice. Nice to hear from you, Adam. I know you. Good guy. Man, I love your. I love your book, and the new one on Holmes is excellent. I oh, thank you. Yes.
0: So, John, I, I just want to let you go ahead and throw out any kind of, uh, you know, uh, plugs or anything else where people are going to be able to find the book. I assume Amazon, and I know JohnBoda.net. Is that by the way? Did I pronounce your
1: name last name right? I hate being that person. Yes, yes, you did. Yeah, okay. it's it's not. It's probably not going to be at that site. That's more of all my music. But uh, uh, we're going to work something out. We got to talk and stuff. We're going to do some book signings, and um, it'll, it'll be out October the second. But you can pre-order it right now at, at uh, Barnes and Noble or Amazon, and um, um I think even Target. And uh, we're getting really close to the release date.
0: Well, we're excited about it. John, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, that song that you referenced earlier, we're definitely going to try to – if we don't upload it to this podcast, we're going to upload it to our station
1: either way so people can hear that. If I can repeat, uh just to say something about the song. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, It's uh, I'm a musician, I'm a singer, guitarist, and I've been a uh, professional, play all over the Chicago area, and I'm in a band called Nebula Forming. And uh, we're doing a new CD project, And course, I always get inspired, inspired by all kinds of stuff. And, and I started thinking, my gosh, I should do a song about it and tie it to the book. And I started thinking about Mrs. O'Leary, and uh, she, the first thing she heard about it was her husband woke her up and said, Kate, Kate the Barnes of Fire and uh so the whole the song is simply Kate the Barnes of Fire and kind of an Irish uh, uh accent there and it's just uh just a fun little funky tune and uh we have like sounds of cackling fire in there and everything and it's just it's it's not to make fun of it but just to have a little uh it's a jam and uh kind of just a re- remembrance of what happened that moment she heard about it all right and
5: I have to, when I leave, I'm going to get going. Um, you can just find me on historycup.com That's the easiest thing to do. And I have to leave since I'm Irish, and, and have, you know, we're going to pick on the Irish all evening. Um <laughs> real quick joke, which I can tell because I'm Irish, um, is uh, what's the difference between an Irish wedding and an Irish funeral?
1: Uh, I, I know. I know the answer to that. You want me no, to tell? you can't tell. No. I, I know the answer. Are uh, you are are you Irish? I'm Irish, man. No, I don't but know I you know not There's Who's that one Irish? less drunk. <laughs> yes, one less drunk at the funeral. <laughs> I don't have to one hire. less
0: people around me is what's the problem? I think. <laughs> all right, I'm okay. out of here, guys. I got to go. All all right. Ray drunk. John, Thank thanks again,
1: fellas. All right, no problem. Okay, am I out? Okay, am I out, too? We, we, we well, if you want to,
0: or you can stick around with Adam. No, Adam's going to talk a little bit about the weird uh, weird things surrounding this whole thing. So if you want to stick around and, and right. piggyback on anything Adam talks about, feel free. Sure. Sure, I'd like sure. to hear yeah, it a few sure. more minutes. My, my, drunk,
5: my, drunk, my drunk Irish friends are looking for me, so I'm going to get going. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All
0: right.
4: All
5: right. Okay, so...
0: So, Adam, um, let's go ahead and intro you in. We haven't talked to you since Gacy, and that's been like two years, and that disappoints me. And it's my wow. fault. So, it feels like I've been,
2: so it feels I've been with you guys since then.
0: I feel like that's the last one we talked, but maybe not. I don't know. We've done a lot of Chicago shows, but usually it's it's Ray stuff because there's not enough weird stuff surrounding it. But this is one <laughs> where you had, you actually did a podcast, and I didn't realize, that number one, that you had a podcast, and so that's my yep. mistake, and two – um, that you had talked about the Chicago fire, and I went and listened you, to it, really. and I was like, well, i got to see if Adam will talk about it on our show. So what do you want to talk
2: about first, Adam? Uh, I don't think we've covered George Francis' train and his supposed prediction of the fire yet. Uh, we have not nice oh, yeah. into
0: that, and I want to hear all about it. And
2: I know, I'm sure John's
0: really familiar with that as well. Yeah, well, I am, but go
2: ahead, Adam. All right, well. You know, there's a lot of debate about which newspaper we should blame for the Mrs. O'Leary story. I would, I would personally blame the Chicago Times, the Wilbur F. story, the uh, editor. I would blame that guy for the world being round. Um, he was uh, <laughs> e- even by 1860s, 1870s standards, he was a remarkably racist man. When I run Rose Hill Cemetery walking tours, we all stomp on his grave, and it's awesome. He described Mrs. O'Leary as a 70 year old Irish hag. Um, which yeah. she was like, what? 35? <laughs> 34. She's 34. Yeah.. yeah, yeah cer- certainly not an old hag. There's probably a drunken Irish joke no. in there someplace, though. And so anyway, so a couple of weeks later, they ran uh, an anonymous confession saying that the whole, uh, whole fire had been a set up by the Society Internationale, which was kind of like the um, 1870s equivalent of the Illuminati. You know, it was a shadowy group that people like to blame things on. Specifically, they said that the night before the fire, a man named George Francis Train, a popular speaker of the day, had been on stage at I think Farwell Hall, or Farwell, Farwell Hall. Hall, Farwell Hall, Farwell Hall, on stage Hall. and said something like in the middle of the speech he suddenly stopped and started shaking and said this is the last speech that will ever be given in this hall something terrible is going to happen the entire the city is going to be destroyed i can't say anything more then it went back to his speech and I looked right. and looked trying to figure out whether he had actually said that, whether there was an account of it in the newspapers the next day. He did definitely speak at Farwell Hall the night before. He was, um, this was an interesting guy. When he gets mentioned in papers at all now, it's, 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 they usually call him a lecturer on moral topics. What he really was was a remarkable crank, uh, a very famous <laughs> crank of the time. He's thought to have been the inspiration for Phineas in around the world in 80 days um and usually right. when he made when there's there's even an ad for his speech that says um first it says the gf train will speak at fallwell hall the next ad below says treason be be warned that george francis train is threatening to give a speech all patriotic citizens be on your guard but what he was doing in a, in the fall of 1871 giving speeches including the one in chicago was he was working on launching his independent bid for the presidency Um, He ended up putting out a a collection of campaign speeches called G.F. Train, the man of destiny. (laughs) And it shows you about what he thought of himself anyway. And unfortunately, nothing from the newspapers the next day talked much about what he said at Farwell Hall that night, or if they mentioned that, or if that went on, they they actually made the prediction. It didn't make the papers. But predicting the destruction of Chicago was definitely a part of his act. He was uh, saying that the polar ice caps were going to melt, the water level was going to rise, and Chicago was going to be destroyed by uh, rising waters. So th- there started being the some debates. Going. Yeah, there started being <laughs> the some <extreme> debates <laughs> in Chicago papers weeks later, saying, you know, was it is it true that that George Francis Train's predicted the whole thing? And the Tribune said, well, the real thing is if he knew that it was going to burn down, where was he with all this water he says is supposed to be turning up? And no. trade himself when asked about it was you know would just give to say yes who who can explain this strange ability I seem to have to see the future uh, yeah he was kind of right. a nut but I, I but I still can't figure yeah. out exactly I I fell in a real rabbit hole reading the guy's speeches and stuff he was well ahead of his time on some issues well behind it on some others hard to really put your finger on the guy but I, I still couldn't figure out for the life of me whether it was uh, really true that he made that prediction that night.
1: Well, he's, he is an amazing character, and uh, it's funny you said he was ahead of his time. Uh, sometimes because Some there's an yeah. interesting there's, there's an interesting picture of him. And you've probably seen it before on the, uh, the Tremont Hotel. uh sitting there about 1865 without a hat, and everybody around him is like all oh, these nice dressed up, and that's him there. And he's got like a profile. And i looked at that picture and I go, my gosh, you know what he looks like? He looks just like Jim Crocey. Uh, The singer, you know, Time in a Bottle. And I'm thinking, what if Jim Croce was a time traveler? But that's a whole other story. But I put the pictures side by side, and they look exactly alike. But that's a different story. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) one one time in the Tribune archives,
2: I did find um, an article about some kids down by the stockyards uh, getting in trouble for messing with fireworks. And one of the kids' names Hmm. was Leroy Brown. So... (laughs) From the, on the it's on the south side of Chicago and everything, man.
1: Yeah, there the you legends go. Legends are true. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, there's there's one more interesting thing about it was uh, um, one of the uh, teenagers running for his life during the Great Fire was Eddie Foy, who lived in Chicago. Yeah, and uh, and he actually was uh, of course starring is the is the head actor and comedian at the Iroquois Theater for Mr. Bluebeard uh <laughs> December 30th 1903 and uh he was on stage when uh, that theater it was absolutely fireproof theater uh burned down and killed over 600 uh people he escaped with his life but uh he actually remembers the Chicago fire as a as a as a young teenager and I do recall I and mean, maybe you can uh further uh, clarify this Adam there's when the okay. Iroquois Theater, which is the worst theater fire in the history of the United States, was happened in December of 1903, one of the uh, strange characters from the streets, supposedly like a, a vagrant, was just ran there and tried to help people. And um, his name was supposed his last name was supposedly O'Leary. And I don't know if that's true or not, but oh
2: no, I haven't heard I yeah. haven't heard that one. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's related well, to the well, O'Learys or what, but
2: it's connection. Go ahead. Well, B- Big Jim O'Leary, and Mrs. O'Leary's son was certainly still around at the time.
1: Yes, yes, Big Jim. Yes, and Big
2: Jim. He was a gambling kingpin.
1: Right. But she had five. She had five. Uh, five children. I don't know five sons, but five children. And I don't know what happened to the other kids. Yeah. Well, she's yeah. You don't become oh, a, if you don't sense.
2: become a gambling kingpin in this town, nobody remembers you. You know.
1: So. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because you could – one of the theories uh, about the entire incident was actually traced back to possible gambling by uh, Peg Leg and some other people, right? You you know, the whole barn story. one of the stories was that they were gambling in the barn, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's also a couple of kids that were – uh, admitted later, one, one, later in life that they were in there, uh, and they knocked, they knocked over a lantern or something. And it, other people have come forth and said this or said that. Peg never admitted he was in there. He saw the, the barn burning, and he ran over there. But he changed his story three or four times, like I said. And uh, there's one man who uh, wrote a very good book called uh, The Great Chicago Fire and the Myth of Mrs. O'Leary's Cow, Richard Bales. And he got into the real estate records, and, and he really got in deep to it. Uh, and Pegleg said he was leaning against the fence at so-and-so's uh, uh, property, and he saw the barn catch on fire. Well, this Mr. Bale said that couldn't be true, because at the time there was other houses right there where he supposedly was standing, and he couldn't see the barn. And so anyway, Bale's thesis is Pegleg O'Sullivan did it. So there you have it.
0: I think it's entirely possible, but I, I like the comment theory as well. Adam, um, one of the things that I, I got to get into with you, since you're our resident ghost tour expert, um, yeah. is – the Water Tower, okay, so this is mm. the one ghost story that I've heard possibly connected to the Chicago Fire. Isn't there yeah. a story of a hanging man that's been seen there multiple times? Uh, I don't know for how long. Well, but... it, it's one
2: of it's one of those things where I never actually meet anybody who claims to have seen hits, but it has been going <laughs> around the uh... A story that's been going around that you can see the silhouette of a man swinging back and forth in one of the windows. Supposedly a guy who was working in the building during the Great Chicago Fire saw the flames approaching and decided he would hang himself rather than be burned up. As far as we know, that didn't actually happen. There were a couple of suicides in the water tower some years later. Um, But I've never been able to see anything in those windows, personally. Yeah, I was going to say... It would it would take an act of God to be able to see something in those because
0: from what I understand it's it's like pitch dark, isn't it? Yeah, you can't really see into them.
2: Right, um, but yeah, that, then that then is about that is the, the main uh, Great Chicago Fire ghost story that I can that I can really think of. There aren't as many as you would think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there there may be some out there that you could probably possibly
0: connect to it if you try hard enough but I don't know right. you just, like, any,
2: anytime you see a ghost and can't come up with a good backstory for it that's a possibility
0: Just say Chicago fire <laughs> yeah that yeah. makes sense to me um,
2: yeah so so um, with
0: the fellow who um, I guess predicted it I mean is this one of those situations where if you predict doom and gloom enough eventually you might be right I mean that's kind of what <laughs> comes to
2: my mind when I hear the whole story Possibly. Well, also, well, you know, everybody—if if you look at newspapers from that day—they're full of ads for fire insurance. Everybody knew a fire was coming. Not to mention that the West Division fire would have been going on just a few blocks away from where he was
1: at the time. I was just going to—I was just going to mention that the fire on October seventh, the night before, was happening the same time that he made that prediction. So, I mean, it's, uh, he could have looked out the window and possibly saw it, and you know, yeah, so there you have it. There. Yeah.
2: So
3: yeah. Well, why were, and
0: we talked about this uh, quickly before you guys came on and John, of course, talked a bit, little bit about it with Ray, um, but why, sh- why was Chicago <laughs> so prone to fires as to, as opposed or compared to other cities? I, I know that, you know, it was created from wood. Was it because it grew too fast too quickly and they just really didn't have any kind of fire ordinances back then?
1: I think it was kind of a perfect ahead,
2: storm of sto- perfect storm of events at the time. The wooden the wooden city was kind of a problem. The droughts that year had been a problem. The fire department had depleted all their resources the night before in the fire in the west division. So everything kind of happened at once. It, it could have been a lot worse. It could have spread to the south side too. But General Sheridan from the Civil War was on hand, blew up a bunch of buildings with dynamite. Right. I, I'd say he was an unsung hero, but he does have a street named after him. So, well,
1: well it's not him, it was actually <laughs> – not only him, but it was also the alderman, uh, um, uh, Hildreth, I believe his name was, that was doing that. and uh, yeah. They they encountered a lot of resistance. A lot of resistance. They show up at a place and say, here, we're here to, to blow up your place. <laughs> so, well, the right. fire hasn't come yet, but it's coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of resistance. Oh, Hildreth. Okay, so
2: name.
0: since we're into the weird part of Chicago, I do have to ask. I know we've talked about some of the plausible theories. I got to ask about conspiracy theories, Adam. I'm sure you've heard some. John, you got to get into some too. I, I got to hear some of these that I have not heard about. I, there's a list out there,
2: but I mean, who better to ask than you two? Right. Well, there's the story that the Society Internationale was behind the whole fire. It was uh, uh, was fairly prominent for a while there, mm-hmm. or you know, just or yeah. you could just bl- blame random anarchist groups or things like that. <laughs>
1: There was also there was also a, a theory. Uh, uh, supposedly, some a couple of guys had come to Chicago to try to sell their wares of this fire preventive uh, equipment. I don't know if you heard about this, Adam, and, and they got uh, laughed at and and ridiculed. And, and then these guys were so upset at the treatment that they got, they came they came back and, and started the fire and burned the city down.
2: That sounds like the kind of urban legend that goes around after every kind of disaster. I remember the one going around that Osama bin Laden had gone to an Ivy League school and someone said he had a small penis? <laughs> <And that> was... <laughs> no, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard yeah, that. that was that was that was going around around two thousand two or so. <sighs>
1: And another one was was it was it was divine judgment from God because of the uh, the sin that was in Chicago at the time. Of course, Chicago has always been a city like that, but you know, at the time with all the, the brothels and prostitution and so forth, so, you know, there's another another accusation that was uh, abundant in churches right after the fire. Sure. We heard
0: that about Katrina too, didn't we? In New Orleans,
2: of
1: course, you know, yeah, because like it's a filthy city yeah. and it got what yeah. it deserved
0: type of thing. Yeah, yeah.
2: just the kind of thing yeah. some people would yeah. say, you know. Yeah. 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 Absolutely.
0: Oh, and so um, one of the things I was wondering is that those conspiracy theories. Did those stretch out to the other cities that got hit with these fires? Because you know there were three big fires as we talked about earlier.
2: Yeah, actually, that's, that I know. Some, of. People would cons- uh, some people would consider that actually evidence that maybe there was some kind of plot going on, that more things happened at the same time.
0: Uh, they never found any mm. mission source or anything, though, obviously, for the nah. time, right?
2: Yeah, no. I don't think so. No. Um, no. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have read the, uh, the original book that put forth the meteor proposition. There was a book called, I can't remember who wrote it off, and it was called Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Gravel. Which also His name was proposition, Ig- Ignatius Donnelly. Donnelly. That's it, yeah. You can get it on yeah. Google Books. Yeah. It's really entertaining. I think it might be the first. He also said a meteor wiped out the lost continent of Atlantis, which I'm not sure anybody had actually yeah. thought was a real
1: place before that. Yeah, they, they thought this guy was a real wacko back then. We're talking about, uh, I think it was uh, approximately 1883 or something, just shortly after the fire. And he, he predicted this, uh, that it was the cause of a comet. And uh, he was either possibly way ahead of his time. Yeah, Ignatius Donnelly, uh, the, the, uh, the age of rock and gravel or something like that. Fire and gravel. I looked at it. But yeah, and gravel. Fire and Gravel.
2: It's it's a, it's a very entertaining book but it's like listening to a guy with a tinfoil foil on his hat on his head for a few hours. But you can find right, the book, right?
1: You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: it's one of those things where as long as you turn your brain off, you, if if you think too hard, you're going to have a bad time.
1: But if, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. okay, it so, came out in 18, 1883. It came out in 1883 Ignatius Donnelly, uh Rag, Ragmaroc, The Age of Fire and Gravel. Yeah,
2: highly entertaining book. I gotta yeah. check that out. Okay, so since we're we're uh, an
0: hour and a half into the show, I guess now is a good time for me to kind of bring up the kind of the horrific aspects of it. And John talked about some earlier, and and this this is something that I don't think people think about when they think of a great fire like this. Um, and most fires, you know, people die of smoke inhalation. These these were people catching on fire. Can you guys? And I don't say this for uh, just for entertainment purposes, but, but I, I just want to convey how horrific this fire was. Can you talk about some of the individual stories that maybe stemmed from this whole thing? You know, and like I said, John threw out some earlier, but if you guys have some that are particularly interesting slash, I don't know. I don't want to say grotesque, but you get my point. Well,
1: but I can just quickly, quickly start off uh, this, it was extremely hot and uh, the wind was blowing about 30 miles an hour and uh, some people found it difficult to breathe and they're trying to run and uh, there are some reports of, of some of the sand along Lake, Lake Michigan Shore turning into rough glass and, and uh, there's something very unusual about this and uh, yes some people were just uh, one, one little girl ran by her hair was on fire uh and there was a they noted that in the busy street as everybody's running with chaos and all the animals and people trying to grab merchandise and um but uh adam you can go ahead and offer anything else so you can think of
2: at least i'm, trying, I'm working on uh, there's an article i'm looking for i've got it on here someplace let me see, okay, yeah, the New York Tribune published a whole thing called a graveyard on fire though it's and there's just a couple of paragraphs so i 'll read it out. It talks about you know what is now Lincoln Park was the city cemetery um, well, it was right. becoming Lincoln Park by then, so the uh, correspondent of the New York Tribune describing the fire says. This region, over by the lake in the Great Lincoln Park, seems to offer safety. So greater rush was made for the park, and the refugees made themselves comfortable in the delusion of security. After ravaging the limits of the city, with the wind dead against it, the fire caught the dried grasses that ran along the fences, and in a moment covered the burning glory of the Catholic cemetery and the grassy stretches of the Great Park. The marbles over the graves cracked and baked and fell in glowing embers on the hot turf. "'Flames shot up from the resting place places of the dead, "'and the living fugitives screaming with horror "'made for a moment the ghastliest spectacle "'that ever fell upon living eyes.' The receiving vault, you know, the place where they stashed bodies, solidly built and shrouded in foliage, fell under the terrific flame, and the dead burst from their coffins as the fire tore through the walls of the frightful charnel house. In the broad light of today, the place is the most ghastly I ever saw, not even cold harbor exceeding it in awful suggestiveness. <laughs> Above the graves, charred stones stand the grim sentinels of the dead, no more memorials of anything but disaster. Every inscription has disappeared, and even the dead are robbed by the flames."
1: Yeah, and there, there were there were uh, you know officially around 300 people that were killed, but again that's a rough estimate because uh, many bodies were not found. They think they were just incinerated, and there's actually more reports of that in Peshtigo, of just just uh, incineration, like uh, people running and just just poof. And uh, uh, there's one haunting picture up there of, of uh, what used to be a train, and all that's left are the iron wheels. Everything else is just completely gone. Uh, it was like a hurricane. I hate to say the word hurricane after what we just seen from down in Florida and elsewhere, but it was a hurricane of fire. Without, without the winds being 100 miles an hour, it seemed like it. Everybody swore the winds seemed to be much faster, but the official word was around 30 miles an hour. And... Uh, just extremely hot. The issue wasn't so much smoke. It was just the, the heat and the gas of the air that was difficult to breathe and was just like in the air itself. <clears throat>
2: hey, John, while I'm thinking about it, have you ever heard anything about where, where Mary Todd Lincoln was during the fire?
1: Yes. Yeah, she actually was at, um, uh, with Robert Todd where he was living at. and I've got, I actually have the address if you want it. Was, was was that when he was up on uh, about, like, Division? Um, no. Um, they actually had to flee for their lives. And uh, another part of her horrific uh, ordeal, uh, I have it right here in front of me, um, 653 Wabash. Okay, yeah. yeah oh, that,
2: that might be the Great Northern Hotel. I'd have, to, I'd have to double check a little bit. You have to do the uh, you have to you have to check like the, the renumbering and everything. Everything okay. got
1: renumbered and uh, things got renumbered in 1909. So, yeah, she uh, you know she her husband was shot in Fort's Theater, and then she lost uh, she lost Willie in the White House, and then just before the fire, she lost another son. Tad died mm-hmm. in July of that year of 1871. So she lost her husband, two kids, and then she's with her Three son kids, Robert Tons- before Yes, yes. Then he had to flee for her life. She'd always dressed in black and was part of the, you know, just helped devastate her condition. And, of course, then uh, shortly thereafter, Robert Todd had to have her committed and, um, uh, in the uh, Bellevue home, which I drive by very often. It's on Route 31 in Batavia. Yeah. Still there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's uh, there some interesting reports from her sanity trial, and she was, she was absolutely railroaded, but I don't think anybody would have voted to
1: acquit. She was only there for a few months, I do believe. It was eighteen seventy-five yeah. was the year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. the Trial was here in Chicago. Right, and she never forgave her son. For that, I do believe. No. no. <laughs> she was.
2: It's hard. It's hard to diagnose somebody from one hundred and fifty years later, but I often feel like if she had to get like some Zoloft and etc. migraine, she would have been a whole new woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right.
4: <laughs> yep. So, so let's
0: see. Some of, the, and we talked about architecture earlier. Some of the ones that still stood afterwards were Chicago Water Tower, Chicago Avenue Pumping Station, Saint Michael's Church, and Saint Ignatius uh, College Prep. The church wasn't there. Didn't weren't they? A lot of the parishioners of the church believers that there was some divine intervention there. Aren't there some stories associated with that?
1: Um, you know about that probably.
2: Uh, I know there's a story that goes around saying that uh, Father Damon told everybody to everybody to pray for the church, and then the church was spared. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the church isn't, wasn't really in the path of the fire, and Father Damon was in New York at the time. He sent a telegram, but not with the, not with those kind of instructions to it. So it's, it's a little bit of a little bit of an urban legend, but you can see how these things grow. I mean, the, the church was fairly close to the fire zone. Yeah.
1: If yeah, they there's said there's it. one church.
2: Go ahead, go ahead. No, I
0: was gonna say all I heard is that it, the fire had kind of like done something weird and gone around the church, and and that was the thing that you know where they said it was a miracle. That's, yeah, and all they, those they like to say. They, I, I realized
2: the source. Right, that's, that's, yeah. that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Say so they went right well, around. Well,
1: it – did. This. There was, there was strange stories of that. It, it, uh, it was, like I said earlier, you weren't online, Adam, that it spared Malin Ogden's home, which is now the Newbury Library on that spot, and that was made out of wood. And they did a lot of things to protect it, but it was amazing. Some houses were spared. The only municipal building in Chicago that was spared was the water tower. Uh, Waterworks was actually damaged and stopped the water flow uh, in that building. So the municipal building, water tower, was the only one. Yeah, the
2: city the city hall and jail was in good enough shape that they were able to keep using it for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But it was not, not in great shape, but good enough that they could keep using it for
1: a while. Yeah, some of the actually, structures remained, but, I mean, it was gutted. Many of the buildings inside were yeah. in so terrible condition. Right.
0: I was actually going to bring this up earlier. I meant to talk about this. Catherine O'Leary's barn... Uh, isn't there like a, a training station for firemen there now uh, something like that yes, yes. Know better yes there me. is
2: yeah there Talk is a uh, the the uh, fire training academy is right about on this right about on the same airspace where Mrs. O'Leary's barn would have been
1: That's courtesy of mayor daly the uh, the father uh, he, he did that and uh, right on the you know they've changed like some names of the the addresses it's no longer 137 to Coven. Um, but that's right there. We stopped in there before the firemen are always real nice in there. And there's a little bit of uh, history on the walls there. And uh, that's the spot right there. Fire Academy. Absolutely.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Any other uh, interesting facts you guys want to throw out about it that I have not gotten into yet? I I, I, I know.
2: know, Speaking of that training Academy, I can tell you one, one of the, one of the famous Chicago ghost stories is that in a, I want to say it was nineteen nineteen. There was a fire at Curran Hall. And that morning a fire a police officer named Frank Levy had been standing there with his hand against the window, acting all spooky and saying, Today something's going to happen today. This is gonna be my last day in the fire department and everyone said, like, Ah, oh, knock it off, Frank and but then again then that night came several firefighters, including Frank Levy, were killed. And the next morning his handprint was still there. And supposedly they could they could never get rid of the handprint. It ties into a lot of like urban legend motifs about like the handprint or the bloodstain that could never be washed off. There's one photograph of the handprint that I've seen from several years later saying, which makes it look like they had kind of actually varnished it, not tried to get rid of it or anything. But in that fire training academy, they've got Frank Levy's badge up on the wall. They've got a badge of uh, all of the firefighters who were ever killed in the line of duty. Uh, in most cases, original. Sometimes they had to get had, had a, have a replica made. But one of them is Francis Levy's, and notably among all of them is nobody from 1871. Apparently, no firefighters were killed <laughs> during the Great Chicago Fire.
1: Well, yeah. Well, there's there's another interesting story. I love stories about time travel. Of course, I, it's just uh, interesting fiction, but uh, I've read. I, early mrs o'leary's testimony other people's testimony of the fire and she said besides going to bed early that night and so forth she said before i went to bed i i she noticed a strange man uh like in the outside and then there was, there was nothing more uh, questioned about it and i'm thinking who is this strange man it wasn't Pegleg like o'sullivan and uh, you always wonder, you know, if, if you ever could go back in time to the places you want to be. I'd like to go see who started the fire. And, yeah, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> who who the it was. Yeah, thing. yeah. This is what I always <laughs> say when, I, when I'm running
2: boat tours: is you know, where you know, what, without a time machine, we'll never know. Did the green hay spontaneously combust? Was it a lightning strike? You know, one of the boat tour companies they make all their guides say that we now know for sure that it was a lightning strike like, yeah. could you build a time machine or what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, like my grandmother was on the Eastland in 1915 and survived. 844 people died. And the only thing I know about how she survived is some strange man, uh, while she was on it before it capsized, told her. She's 20 years old at the time and told her, you know, I think it'd be safer for you if you stood over here instead of over here. And, you know, back then, it's just a matter of where you were standing, where you were, yeah. if you were li- lived or died. And she lived. And who was the strange man that told her to move over there? Maybe it was me, but I, I didn't go back in time. To but, you know,
2: yeah, you, th- you think there was a police box nearby? <laughs> I don't know.
1: I'm, just, I'm glad she listened to him and she moved or I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah. you know,
0: we we talk about mysteries a lot on this show. Like, we talked about the Starved Rock murders. I mean, we're talking Illinois, you know, and, and while there may not be a lot of mystery to that, still people uh, talk about it to this day. I mean, and I realize this is maybe a little hard for you guys because you're Chicago guys or Illinois guys, but... I mean, Great Chicago Fire, the cause of it. I mean, when we talk about some of our nation's mysteries, I mean, where do you put this? Obviously, it's behind JFK and a lot of the other big ones. But, I mean, do you think this is, like, a big story nationwide that people still wonder about? Or do you think it's kind of been forgotten? I know people know the name.
2: Most people just think it was Mrs. O'Leary and the cow. Yeah, yeah. Right. That, that, that That that, that (laughs) That there's any doubt to that, you have to dig a little deeper to find out about But that, but that was fake news.
1: Yeah, it's uh, people just, just like uh, the Custer and the little, little Bighorn. We don't know what happened because everybody was wiped out there in 1876, and it's another big mystery. But the the myth, myth continues. You know, there's that that song "Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight," and there's a second verse in there where it it perpetuates the myth of Mrs. O'Leary's cow, and, and the second verse, which I know. I try not to do, but uh, I could do it if you want. Go ahead. You can do it. (laughs) All right. Uh, One dark night when we were all in bed, Mrs. O'Leary left the lantern in the shed, and when the cow kicked it down, she winked her eye and said, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight.
0: And Mrs. O'Leary, she she is the ultimate scapegoat, is she not? I mean, you talked about it earlier, but I, I mean, what it took till 1997 for her to be ultimately exonerated of the whole thing.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, not only that, there's another scapegoat uh, in the Eastland disaster, since I have a connection to it, and that would be uh, Joseph Erickson, who was the chief engineer. And uh, he, he actually was a hero. That he was the engineer, and he turned the engines off so they wouldn't explode. His water was up to his neck. The thing was capsized. In fact, he was a small, skinny guy. He, he swam out through the porthole and went right back down and was rescuing people. Well, they all blamed it on him, and the the poor guy had to hire a lawyer. As a matter of fact, he hired Clarence Darrow. He couldn't afford it, but he did, and he just devastated his life. And uh, he died a couple years later of a broken heart. He looked like a he looked like a seventy year old man. He was only about thirty four years old when he died.
0: I couldn't believe Mrs. O'Leary actually stayed in Chicago. I know she stayed out of the public eye, but I mean to, to yeah, actually there's, stay there's in the no area. No photographs.
2: Yeah, there's no photograph of her, no drawing made from life. I, uh, I believe that's been said that that was right. a revenge on reporters.
1: Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. Absolutely. We do have a drawing of Big Jim. I never saw a photograph of Big Jim, but I saw a sketch of him before,
2: yeah. but not of
1: Mrs. O'Leary.
2: Did we talk about his story about the Green hay?
1: No, I didn't get into Big Jim.
2: All right, yeah, Big Jim O'Leary, around the time the first story went around, it's one of, my, one of my favorite little bits is the, the story about the two kids who broke in to steal milk from the cow to make whiskey punch and dropped a pipe into the hay or something. Uh, when they told the story, part of the angle was they, they confessed to their priest immediately, and he absolved them for the horrible mistake, but did give them a stern lecture about trying to become whiskey drinkers. So burning down <laughs> the city, that, you, know, that's just, you know, it's just all part of growing up, but you put this whiskey drinking thing. Uh, but when that story went around, a reporter went into one of Big Jim's gambling places, and he said, "Now listen, that story about the lamp is the monumental fake of the century." He said that what really happened is they had just gotten a load of green hay into the hayloft, and the hay spontaneously combusted. Yes, which is yes, which is something eating. that which which is something that green hay is known to do. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Big, I had Big heard Jim already the combustion
0: story, but not about the green hay. So that's I didn't realize that.
1: Yep. Which There's, only two, There's only two things. Only two things about Big Jim about that story. Number one, uh, the the good part is, I mean, he was there. He was a kid, and he, he was he actually was there. Uh, the the downside is, he was a noted gambler and a very notorious character. So whether we believe him or not, you know, there you have it, right? Right. Yeah. And
2: once again, we need a time machine yeah. to find out for sure. And really, what we're talking about right. is not really what started the Great Chicago Fire. Is what started a bar, what should have been a regular old barn fire kind of thing that happened just yeah. about every day. It was just like the perfect storm of events that made it spread further. Might have just been an accident waiting to happen, really. Yeah. Right.
0: Mm. I mean, they were having two fires every day, like you. I mean, like they had talked about. So it, it At least apparently was just bound to happen. I mean, plus, you know, this it was a fire hazard. The entire city was a fire hazard,
1: as we talked about, you know? Mm. Well, there were... There were about 50 miles worth of wooden sidewalks and, and, and even streets. Many of them were wood blocks. And the Achilles heel was, even though these buildings were considered fireproof uh, of brick and so forth, the roofs were wooden tar. And uh, once this fire got out of control, it was, it was getting way ahead of the fire department. They did their best they could. Of course, they were devastated from the, the, the night before, which really didn't help. But it just went so fast. And so beyond, they're they're able to to contain it uh, and just going from roof to roof. Even the the Tribune building, oh, we've got it under control. It's not going to burn the Tribune building or the courthouse. And once it got there, uh, it's a whole different story with this fire.
5: Right
0: yeah I mean that that's kind of the uh the story of the uh two hours that we've told here is that this fire was just not something that anybody had seen before and let's be honest eighteen seventy one they're ill equipped to deal with it you know there there just was no way that they
1: were going to be able to fight this off well for sure right uh one one good aspect that happened was uh there was two under river uh water. Under under River Tunnels, Washington Street, and there was also right there at LaSalle. And uh, in fact, the one, if I'm not mistaken, Adam, you can jump in, the one at LaSalle was just completed, I believe, the 4th of July of 1871. And so the pedestrians could actually go under under the river and cross the river. And back then it was always difficult with these pivot swing bridges. And it, thank God they, they got those tunnels, and the last, the second one was just completed because it saved a lot of lives. People went under the river in these tunnels. Now they're blocked off. You can't use them, but they saved a lot of lives.
2: Oh, yeah. It, which is yeah, paying the, a uh, lot. There, it's situation. blocked off in full of the, the, the LaSalle one. And it was, it, they filled it up with damp sand in 1957, but it's still down there. Yes, yes. And Chicago is full of tunnels like that. In fact, I think it was, I can't remember what statistic this guy was connected to, it but like the last house that the fire got was owned by a guy named John Huck, who lived up in the Gold Coast, and also had a whole network of tunnels that he had dug out about 15 years before for uh, aging his beer in the summertime. And those tunnels are still (laughs) presumably down there, too. But, you know, kids used to play cops and robbers in them all the time. Eventually, about 100 years back, the parents got freaked out and decided to have them all blocked off, so they're presumably still there, but nobody's entirely sure where anymore. You can't just, like, show up in the Gold Coast with a shovel and start digging.
1: Yeah, I keep right. hoping
2: some kid playing Pokemon Go is going to find him, find an entrance someplace. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, fellas, you uh, the combined
0: might of both of you, uh, John especially, you came in at, at 9 my time, and you've killed it for an hour and 45-plus. Adam, you've killed it for about 45 minutes. Um, what do you guys want to throw out? Is there anything else that you guys want to throw out before we head
2: on out of here? Well, I'll just, I'll just plug. For those of you in Chicago, I'll just plug my upcoming tours. If you go to MysteriousChicago.com, I've got tours all next month. Uh, my new A.G.H. H. Holmes book, A.G.H. Holmes: The True History of the White City Devil, is out now. And uh, my band is called Eighty Second Street. <laughs> our, our new record will be out in
1: November.
0: Hey, Adam, you were cool. awesome on American Ripper, by the way, buddy.
1: Oh, thanks, man. Yes. Good job. Yeah, you were. Man. Yeah, you were. And I'll just give quick, quick plug Uh the, the book, uh, The Great Chicago Fire, and Arcadia, is uh, in Case Cummins just joined us. We it'll be out October second uh Barnes and Noble, Amazon and uh myself, John Boda and Ray Johnson are the uh, the authors and we have two hundred and thirteen pictures in there with captions and five chapters and we think it's a, a nice uh addition to the fire books. Sounds
0: great. Well fellas say thank you for both for taking out your time to uh you know, talk to us about the Great Chicago Fire. A lot of people would say, you know, this is a horror podcast. Why would you talk about the Great Chicago Fire? And I think you guys kind of helped outline that for us when you talked about well, some of the well, horrific well, things. What's not
2: horrible about burning a City, you know?
0: That's what I always say. You know, it's a real-life horror, and we've talked serial killers and things like that. How is this any different? I mean, this is hundreds of people getting killed and people becoming homeless over it. So that that's not horror. I don't know what is.
1: Ooh. Well, listen, thanks for having me. I'm going to check out. Adam, it's nice talking with you and uh, connecting with you. I love your books. You keep at it.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. Adam, you take care, buddy. All right. Thanks. Like I said, anytime you got anything you're working on, let us know, okay? Will do. All right. Later on, Phil. So All right. Thanks a lot. And so that was Adam Seltzer, and of course that was John. And uh, I tell you what, it was a a really fun show about the Great Chicago Fire. We could have just gone on and rambled and rambled, and I just decided I was taking up too much of their time, plus we only have 10 minutes left in our program. Vic, give me two seconds here. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. I want to see if I'm able to play this on the air,
4: his song. Here we go.
5: Let's see.
4: Can you hear it? Did nope. you hear it? You can't nope. hear it? No. Nope. Damn.
0: Okay. Nope. It's playing on my phone, but it won't play on the show, so too bad. That's all Thank right. You. I'll send it over to Angel and uh, David, see if I can get it uploaded for us. It
4: was yeah. It all
0: right. So, Vic, uh, what you been watching, buddy? Anything good lately?
3: Uh, I watched something today that sucked. Uh,
0: hashtag whore.
3: Yeah. Um, Feels like it was tough I'll, to
0: be honest with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It
3: did. I, I have. It's actually paused on TV right now because I'm at my car. But uh,
4: mm,
0: it really it's
3: sucked. A, other than that, um, I watched it, which we already talked. To, I watching it again. I watched it twice now. Um,
0: I don't know, that's not casual. It's not. Can that, you give us a rating for it? It's not very good. What? What's your rating for
4: it?
3: Hello? Oh, my rating for it. Yeah. Oh, man. Rating for it. 3.5 out of 4. (laughs) 3.5 out of 4.
0: Now, I've only seen it once, but I would agree with you. We're too fucking similar, sir. We need to watch some things to piss each other off.
4: And I was
0: saying... What? I, 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 whoa! I, 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 Are you still in
5: your um, car? Because you're breaking up, I'm crazy. I'm here, but you're breaking up really bad.
4: Are you still there? Oh okay. well He's still breaking up. I can hear you, but you're breaking
0: up, and I can't. All right. He's gonna to try to get some service.
4: If you were drunk like me, you'd be pushing in the bushes right now, because that's what I'm about to do. He's crying. I'm here. Hello? <laughs> I'm here.
3: All right. I can hear you now. Okay, good.
0: Yeah. So, anyway, but then,
3: what were you saying? You said, I don't remember. Three and a half out of four. You, you said that you agreed... With-
0: Yeah, I saw it once. It wasn't a perfect movie, but it was pretty damn good, and there's not a whole lot of flaws to it.
3: Yeah, and I can honestly say, like, watching it a second time, it didn't get worse or better, if that makes any
0: sense. I was hoping it would be better the second time. I want to see the director's (laughs) stuff that they keep talking about.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was damn good. I thought it was made well, and Now I'm ready to go out and see NFL once we get this uh, move pass, man. For you,
0: what would it have taken to uh, get a four? I don't know. Uh, I'm not real sure either. Like, I'm not sure what they could have done to make it a four. I told you one of the things that they didn't do right was um, Mike's story. Yeah. Um,
3: But that doesn't really affect my rating.
4: You know what I mean? Like yeah, they
0: so nothing,
3: nothing they do to him is going to make you give it a four.
0: Yeah, I don't know what it, what they could have done to, give it, to make it a four. I'm I'm just not sure. Um, I've heard a lot of people say it wasn't scary, and I think that's because you're adults watching a movie
4: that's supposed to
3: scare young people.
4: That's my
0: opinion. Yeah,
3: so, yeah I, I agree. Or, I mean, I guess or people that are scared of clowns, which if you're scared of clowns, you're bullshit anyway. Vic, i got to put out the Great Chicago Fire in my bushes, okay? I, I already pissed my fucking life, my driveway.
0: Yeah, I'm pissed now.
3: Uh,
0: Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, it's not a good <laughs>
3: podcast unless I do that.
0: I went over yeah. to the uh, the liquor store earlier, Liquor World, and the chick there yeah. hard at me. I'm like, God damn, how old do you think I am? I'm old. <laughs>
3: Dude, every time they charge me, me at the boat, they're like, oh, I would have never guessed you were that old. I'm like, I don't know if I should feel happy or sad about that.
0: Well, it's because you're a big fella, you see. Like, my dad My dad looks younger than what he is because he's got a round face because he's a big fella. But that you, uh you, yeah, I'll probably look horrible when I'm, like, 60 or so
4: because I'm skinny
0: or I'm at least decently skinny. So, like, that's where you've got the advantage over me, Vic.
3: Nah, is that, is that what it is?
0: Now, where you fuck up is that you grow your beard long, and all that gray comes into it, and it's,
3: it's more obvious. Yeah. That's a good point. I need to keep. I need to stay clean cut. Yeah, see, you got to go back to the Gerber baby
0: look. I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so let me, let me get into a couple of movies that I've watched. I watched the end of Fright Night, or I watched the rest of Fright Night because I watched it last week. That movie's still great. I want to meet Chris Verandon for Fright Night i probably meet him for, like, three things, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah? Um, Yeah, I like him. He's a good dude. Um, I want to... Let's see. What else did I watch? Uh, Fucking... I watched Puppet Master, Vic. I watched Puppet Master too.
4: I can't wait to do the Puppet
0: Master movie someday. I like the Puppet Master movies. Now, granted, I don't remember shit after Part 2, so we'll see. It, it uh, might know, get into the others. I've One and two the, are on I know Hulu. The like good. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. One and two are on yeah. Hulu right now, so you guys can check it out right now, uh, whenever you want on Hulu. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to get into some new horror movies, like Among Friends. You know, by Danielle Harris, she directed it. She also had a cameo playing. Uh, she she was she was dressed as the clown in Halloween Four that she was dressed as.
3: That's
0: awesome. Yeah, and and this girl was, like, tripping balls, and she was like,
4: the girl from Halloween? <laughs>
0: so I got to tell everybody about the Kane Hodder line that was the best part of the whole fucking movie. Kane Hodder, like, he's a limo driver, and uh, this this girl gets out of the car. He's like, yeah, bet you stuck a good dick. And then a guy gets out of the car right behind her. He's a little fruity-looking guy. He goes, bet you do, too. <laughs>
4: That's so amazing.
0: And then the next chick gets out and he's like, oh, nice tits.
4: Kate <laughs> <laughs> Hunter was perfect.
3: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, so among friends, how do I rate this fucking movie?
4: Well, have you seen Would You Rather yet? Uh... I think
0: on so. On Netflix. If you have not I... seen Would You Rather, I highly recommend you see it. Uh, Dr. Herbert West Jeffrey Combs is in it, and it's very fucking good. It's, I would call it very, uh, it's kind of like torture porn, if you ask me. I like torture porn. Yeah, so you'll like Would You Rather. This is a little bit like that, but not as extreme. Uh, Would You Rather is better than Among Friends. Among Friends is okay. Uh, you can tell it's independent and low budget as shit. But they had a couple cameos, so that was cool. Uh... I give it a 2.5. It wasn't terrible, you know?
1: Yeah,
0: I like it. I like it. People acted like it was really bad. It wasn't really bad. It just wasn't really good either. Two and a half. It was, you know, it was fine. It was on Hulu. It was, like, it was
3: her first movie, right?
0: Yeah, it was her directorial debut. And then she yeah. came to Horror Hound, and she was looking all good and needing it. i She's saying. "What?
3: She needed it. She was looking amazing.
0: I said she was looking all
3: good and needing it. Oh, and needing it. I thought you said good and decent. Huh.
0: Uh, she, no, she needed it is what she needed. She needed another baby.
3: Yeah, yeah
0: I'd give
4: her
0: a couple. So, I watched Among Friends, and then I was going to start another movie today, but I just never got to it. Then I started The Houses That October Built right before our show, and I only got like 15 minutes into it. I was pissed off because it was fucking found footage. But everybody's talking pretty good about it, so I'll get back to it. It's on Netflix.
4: Yeah, you. I'm tired of found footage,
0: though, man. I'm so fucking sick of found footage. By the way, as predicted, uh, it is doing exactly what I expected it to do. Uh, Now they're saying there's going to be a Friday the 13th movie in 2020, which I don't believe. But still, the thought process is there. Yeah. That's a
3: long time. <laughs> it's better than not at all. I guess. I guess. And,
0: you know, the, Halloween,
3: guess. the Halloween Queen
0: has gotten kicked into gear again. Because, you know, they were working on one, but I think they've really gotten motivated to finish it now.
3: And Yeah.
0: I've heard bad things about your new Texas Chainsaw movie. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, well,
3: well, yeah. I mean, we all know it's going to be bad, but it's still a slasher and it's still coming out. We're still going to watch it. Yeah, I wish it,
0: well, I, part of me wishes it gets a theatrical debut, but I don't think it's going to do very well, so I kind of don't. Yeah. I, also, to be honest with you, Vic, this is just the honest truth, I loved Curse of Chucky. I loved it. I don't expect Cold of Chucky to be very good. Really? Yeah. Uh,
3: I, I don't. Saw, I thought the
0: preview looked crappy.
3: I saw Curses on Netflix, I'm watching now.
0: Yeah, you should. It's been there for a while. Zodiac's yeah, well, back on
3: there too. I, I yeah, I saw that. Early. I never, I never used my Netflix. It's just there, just so I know I have it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I watched Zodiac the other day again. You know, I love that movie. Plus, I love Zodiac. So,
0: yeah, Zodiac
3: to the, the rest it. It's in my, my top five, good. man. It wasn't in your top five when we did the show.
0: Well, we need to redo that show. My opinion has changed.
3: <laughs> Uh, yeah, mine probably. Mine might have a little bit. We we should redo that show actually on the podcast and not the YouTube.
0: Well, we should do a top ten if we're going to do a podcast about it.
3: Yeah, let's do a top ten. Because I
0: can tell you, Gainesville Ripper will be somewhere in there.
3: All right, we're we're doing it. We're doing the top ten after after the Saw series. We're go to do a top ten serial killers in November.
0: Well, that's if you're around.
3: What? I can't do a top ten serial killer shows
0: so if you're not around. You know, of you start picking not. up for oh, the yeah.
3: holiday season. Hey, that's a good point. Well, we'll do it early November.
0: Okay. Okay. We will after um, after uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Yeah.
3: because we're doing mind. that
0: November seventh. Assuming it's still on YouTube. If it's not, we'll we'll just do top ten serial killers. Man, that's going to be hard to fill out a list of 10. I can tell you who's not going to be on there. Who? Ronald Dominique and Gary Ridgway.
3: That's horrible.
0: Don't care about stat collectors.
3: <laughs> who's your favorite basketball player?
0: Um, Who's my favorite basketball player? God, Magic Johnson.
3: <laughs> a stat stuffer.
0: Huh? My
3: bet I said he's a stats sufferer,
0: <laughs> Nah, he's not a stat collector, that was John Stockton.
3: Well Ma Magic collected some stats
0: didn't He's kinda of yeah, like he, he wasn't was was right, you, you want me to tell you who was a stat collector? Craig Biggio. <laughs> uh Rafael <Rocky> Palmero. <laughs> they,
3: they were all bums.
0: You know what I'm saying? They're just guys that collected was... stats, but they didn't do anything.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know.
0: Ridgeway's the same way? And so is Ronald Dominique. That's all I'm saying.
3: Ridgway, he was like, he he, he might be top ten. You don't know. Ronald Dominique is definitely out.
0: Well, you're talking about my top ten. And I can say that they're not my top (laughs) ten. You
3: know what I'm saying? You can say that, but I don't believe it.
0: Well, I can't see them getting into my top (laughs) ten. I don't think. You're starting to make me second guess myself. I don't know why. (laughs)
3: Because <laughs> it's funny to me. Yeah. All it yeah. Well, it would be nice if you get Gacy on your list somewhere. Hey, he'll make it top well, 10.
0: Did Panze kill more well, than three people? I don't know.
3: Did it, it matter?
0: Yeah, isn't that the, the standard?
3: He, is he, are you saying he's not a serial killer, sir? Because he is. I,
0: I'm questioning it. That's all. Is Manson... Are we oh. going to use
3: the FBI? I'm asking. Are we
0: going to use the FBI's definition, or are we going to use my definition, where it's like porn? <laughs> you don't really define it; you just know it.
3: Yes, that's what we're using. Like you just ha you just know it.
0: Like okay, then Ed Gein and Manson and then Pandram qualify because if Manson's not a serial killer, you know what I'm saying? I don't care what their <laughs> definition
3: is. He feels uh, like one to uh, me. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> what about Aaron Hernandez? Does he count?
3: How many people he kill? I mean, he's... He, he, I'd he say he probably kill killed at least I mean, he he was probably he really was a serial killer, but he's not in my top ten.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not saying he is. So I was just wondering. What about O.J.? He only killed two. And it wasn't in different different um times, so O.J., I guess, wouldn't kill either. Oh,
3: he's just a murderer, a double murderer.
0: Yeah, well we'll have to get into it and figure out all this out. What about Elizabeth Bathory and Jack the Ripper? Do they count?
3: <laughs> I think so.
0: Well Jack has to count. I don't know about Elizabeth Bathory. <laughs> <laughs>
4: we'll, we'll figure
0: have to it go out with some man.
3: modern ones or something. Yeah, some of these bums they don't count. We'll figure it out. Either way they hmm. wouldn't be in my top episode on matter. What about Eileen Warner?
0: She in your top? She
3: might be. She, she might be on the outside looking in though.
0: Ramirez? People like that? I don't know. A
3: definitely in the
0: top ten. He's definitely got a better shot than Ridgeway. <laughs>
3: I'm a
0: too.
3: I just feel like you like have some type of like girk against Ridgeway. And it's funny. He's a nerd.
0: Name. He's a nerd.
3: He he, uh, he looks like Flanders.
0: He does look like he
4: does. He looks just like him. It's fucking funny.
3: It is. Like, what the fuck? I'm going do you. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. I wonder if that's what he said before he killed these hookers.
3: Oh, I'm sure he did. They had to be. I it. do
0: respect the walk of life he killed. It's pretty cool to kill hookers. Him and Robert Hansen had that going for him.
3: Yeah. If I'm going to kill somebody, it probably be all hookers.
0: Well, me too. Nobody's going to miss them. They're not real people.
3: Exactly. Exactly. All
0: right,
3: yeah. brother. I think we've over the one I welcome today.
0: We have. But, you know, we had to get into some obscene things before uh, we got off here. By the way, I just Boy. want to talk about one thing that's grinding my gears really quickly before we head out. There's two genders, or three. I'll, I'll go with three if you want. But I'm not even sure the third one should count. I don't count it. And by the way, sex and gender—they're the same fucking thing. Yeah,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. Throwing that. In. Vic, you got
3: anything? 100.
0: Just uh, grinding your gears.
3: I don't, man. I don't. Just tell the world you can follow me at Vic Von Eric and uh, Trav and Uh We got a website, Trav dot WordPress dot com. What?
4: I said, look at you.
3: I know. I finally got it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Follows anywhere, man. We're all over the social media uh, uh, fucking hemisphere or some shit. Hey, Vic, let me ask you a question. What's that?
0: You know the Annabelle Annabelle doll that Lorraine Warren and her husband had? Yeah. If I beat off and come in that thing's face, do you think it would like stop being possessed?
3: (laughs) Oh my god! Um, I think you should try
0: it. I mean, I would, but she won't let me have it. Uh, Because I would.
3: Well, who won't let you have
0: it? uh, Lorraine Warren, because I I think she's still alive. Her husband's dead. It might be the other way around, though. I'm not sure. They. I mean, but but that's how you ward off a, a spirit, you know, because. I've told people this before, you know, ghosts don't mess with me because I'll just jack off. They don't want to see that shit. They better not want to.
3: Oh, Lord. I mean, yeah, that's what you guys... This
0: is say. common knowledge, big. This isn't fucking... This is facts.
4: Yes, I, I agree with one,
0: All right, cool. All right, buddy. <laughs> what else you got for me? And... <laughs>
3: Nothing, man, nothing. Any uh, inanimate objects you
0: want to uh, jizz in the face of?
3: Nah, nothing can think of. I'll, I'll what about sure like Jessie with
0: Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3? You want to jizz in her face?
4: <laughs> Cause, see,
0: the way that would work is if you jizzed in Jessie's face and then you laid her on the floor, the other toys couldn't help her because you would know that they were doing
3: stuff. Shut the fuck up.
0: They would just have to leave it.
3: I can't deal with you right now. <laughs> All
0: right. We'll be next back next week for Kentucky Bloodbath. Later on, Vic. I'll talk to you ne- next week.
3: All right, brother. Later. Le- later.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse with family